Hey, this is Jim Toe, artist of Youngblood, and you're listening to 11 O'Clock Comics. Oh, it's that time of the week. One day early, too. They're going to love us. Yeah. I like surprises. Everything is still on for tomorrow night, though, right, Jason? Because even though with the rain, nothing's going to get rained out. So far, I mean, that's why we're recording tonight, because two of my kids have lacrosse games away tomorrow night. uh, White people probably. Yeah. 1%. That's that silly (laughs) game with the hoops, right? (laughs) 1%. What do you do? Uh, long intro song. It's all the music. Yeah, it's all loud. Sign I'm just giddy because I got Mike Trout in the draft. Yeah, I saw that. Nice. Mike Trout's a baseball player, Vince. I, I thank you. <laughs> he's, not, not, he's not really bad. He's not stuck to the wall. So, throw yeah. some meat at the geek in the corner. That's a baseball player, man. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I do feel bad though, because you know how this these are you know we've, these are the in honor of Greg, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, so the one we're doing tonight is a keeper league. So the way that works, Vince, is like you get to keep a certain number of players from the prior year, carry them over. Sure. But also like your strategy. So if your team kind of starts sucking it, you can like trade some of your really good players to a guy that needs like the good players to try and win that year, and then he can give you like younger players that are going to be worth keeping at lower rounds, you know, incentive. Like, so, But another thing you can do as part of that is trade draft picks in the future years, right? Mm-hmm. So it stinks for uh, our man uh, Chris from Comic Book DB, who's a long-time participant. I guess he had traded with Greg last year, and part of the trade was he got Greg's third-round pick, which is a big pick. That's like a star player. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, the way the system works is I deleted Greg's team because he's no longer with us. So that his players would go back in the pool. But when you delete a, pl- a keeper league team, all the transactions related to that team also get negated. So Chris ended up losing a third round pick and I couldn't give it back to him because, you know, there's, there's no yeah, one to absorb just, that pick. Yeah. Cause like we have someone new that took a spot in the league, but it's like a brand, they're just treating it like a brand new team. So I kind of, I felt bad, but there's nothing. I mean, he understood, but there was nothing, no way to make him whole there. So. I'm thinking about maybe giving him a priority free agent pickup after we draft, like letting him like pick someone without having to do waivers. Just oh, nice. It seems unfair. I mean, it seems. I mean, yeah, no, no fault of anyone but the system. He got bumped. Yeah, yeah. You know. Hey, Dap. Yo. Remember that episode of Star Trek where the aliens were buzzing the coffee cups and Kirk could barely make out what was going on, but it was just like that was that was that was just now. <laughs> oh shit! Hey everybody, look at this! It's eleven o'clock comics episode four hundred and sixty-seven. Hoot! And I am Vince B. Oh man, you are Vince B. I have been needing tonight for a while, and like, I am David A. Price, like dough. And I have been reuniting children with their legitimate fathers for years because I am Maury Povich. <laughs> you are not. You're really not Maury Povich. God bless him. He is a saint, though. Yeah, he is. But you're is not. Is he still married to Connie Chung? 
I assume. I mean, well, I shouldn't assume, but I, yeah, I think so. I would like to be married to Connie Chung. But no, yes. <laughs> no, you would because, you know, his. his yeah, because his taste. It. Stop. Yeah. His, he, he, his, his stop. issues. Stop. <laughs> Unleashed I'm in the. It's a family friendly show. It is. It is. Yeah. But no, you're not Maury Povich. You're Jason Wood, everybody. And we're well, uh, all here. And once again, hey, this episode has been brought to you by Valiant. Da, 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 da. Yes. And the all-new XO Man of War number one. It's on stands right now. Everywhere, comic shops. If you don't get it, man, I feel bad for you because it is a gorgeous book. We talked about it two episodes back if you want to listen to it. And last episode, too, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, go listen to that stuff. But it is written by the man himself. He of awesome beard, Matt Kent. And... Illustrated by rising star Thomas Giarella, who also did Conan. I was looking through some old Conans, and I'm like, damn. Dude, I said that two weeks ago. Yeah, that's right. Um, this I is, said he spent like 15 years doing Conan on off. <laughs> this is a, a brand new beginning for Valiant's flagship character. Uh, I don't know about the flagship character, but uh, this is part one of Soldier. It's a perfect jumping on point and the opening chapter of 2017's biggest new ongoing series. That is true. If you've been looking for a place to start with the Valiant, look no further. This right here is it. Exo Man of War number one on sale yeah, now from Valiant Entertainment. And the reason why I scoffed at the flagship character is because I love the Bloodshot. You do. But I do love the Exo as well. So You do. You do. I love all things Valiant. I guess. I, I guess all things considered, with with this this iteration of Valiant, that I, I oh man, I, I guess I guess EXO kind of You're right. You're working through some things. I think no, he is. I'm, I'm thinking about it because I, I, I don't. It's not. I don't think it's Bloodshot. As much as I would like it to be, I can't really say Bloodshot is because uh, Bloodshot does. I think kind of rely on other things going on in the Valiant universe. Mm-hmm. Um, but EXO being, and this is kind of like I, saying, I, would, I would like to say Eternal Warrior, but I, I think I got to go with EXO. Oh, I would like to say Eternal Warrior too, but unfortunately, yeah. Yeah, um, so. that ticket. I go with Ninjak myself. No, oh. I like Ninjak, but flagship character. It's not. It's not, it's not dude. Relax, son. <laughs> he hasn't even read it yet. It's like Bloodshot, son, all the way. Okay. You don't think it's Bloodshot? I think it's Bloodshot, yeah, but Dap yeah. thinks it's Exo, which I have to respect Dap because... I think it's Eternal Warrior, but it, 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 considering what we have available to us, I'd have to say it's... Mm-hmm. I mean, who, who right. are they? They are, I, and rightfully, you know, deservedly so, Exo is getting some some nice... It, first of all, the story is outstanding, but I mean, the promotion behind it, it it's... Mm-hmm. They are... It's they're definitely putting the best foot forward with this Eternal Warrior right now. Limbo. It's not like we can hawk an Eternal Warrior comic. So not for this, no, it, it's, right, it's right. done. Yeah, uh, or it's close to being done. With the mm-hmm. we get the the uh, yeah. I haven't read an Eternal War on Turner. Yes. Yeah. Let's see. But anyway, buy this Exo Man of War number one. It's great. And we, yes, we, you know, you'll right. be, we'll be talking about Val. We always talk about Valiant a lot. So if you want to get in on that, you got to read it. I think. And that La Rosa cover. Oh my God. And I'm just oh going to, thank you. Nice segue. I believe I saw on Facebook, Mr. La Rosa had boxes ready to be shipped. That box hum- in the room and shit? Humble bundle. Uh, I, I believe he signed 
two or three thousand Exo Manowar covers. Uh, to be, I, I, I don't know what, what, what exactly the promotion was for, but he had, he had stacks of boxes of Exo ones that, uh, that he had, uh, fat stacks that, that, that he had signed the covers of ready to be shipped out. Wow. Nice. But lucky some bitch is getting some autographed Louis Arosa books. Look at that. Wow. And you could be a lucky some bitch. If you just, yeah. if you just use your brain and go to the place where the comics are the cheapest. And where, mm-hmm. where is that? Discount comic book service. That's right. Discount comic book service. DCBService.com are the absolute best at getting you what you want for not a whole lot of fat stacks. Uh, the new list is up and oh my goodness, there are oh amazing God. things offered this month. My previews order doubled from last month. Damn. Um, first up from Dark Horse. This is a no-brainer. Matt Wagner's Grendel Tales Omnibus Volume 1. It features a short story from Grendel number 40, Four Devils, One Hell, Devil's Hammer, Devils in Our Midst. Two and, Devils, One Cup. And de- <laughs> you got to do it. And Devils and Deaths. Uh, the creative teams on this book. Some guy named Alan Moore, Stephen T. Siegel, James Robinson, Rob Walton, Darko McCann, Hochi Anderson, Teddy Christensen, Paul Grist, uh, Bernie Moreau. Uh, it's just Matt Hollingsworth. This thing is – this book is fantastic. Dap and I read these as they was coming out. Mm-hmm. Now you have a chance to scoop them all up in uh, one fell swoop. It's about 450 pages, I think. It's it's fat. It's it's fat. And all of that. I I do believe uh, that this collection contains Mr. Uh, Daniel Warren Johnson's pick for an upcoming column on the website. DWJ's dope. Look at that. Well, in addition, now the cover price of this thing is a very respectable twenty four ninety nine. If you have mm-hmm. seen the Dark Horse Omnibus Omnibuy Omnibu, they are a little bit smaller. In stature than a, yeah. than a regular yeah. size comic. Sure. But you, what you trade for in height, you get many, many, many pages. So it's like 450 pages, 24.99 cover price. But because you're super smart and you go to DCBService.com, you can have it for $12.49. That's an insane price for this book. 50% off. Also, my heart is still beating kind of hard. Uh, from the moment that I saw this solicitation, I want to believe it's true. I, I, I will relax when I get the actual book in my hands because this, um, the reprinting of this material has been solicited before and it did not come to fruition. But, um, from boom, fingers crossed, it's the Planet of the Apes archive hardcover volume one. Without question, Mike Plug's finest work. Bar none. And you know what I'm going into when I say that because I love Plug's Man Thing. It is among my favorite work from any artist, from any publisher, any era. But I think the Planet of the Apes stuff that he did for the magazines was better. You get Doug Munch, Mike Plug, Tom Sutton, Herb Trimpey. Wow. It's a, it's a, uh, a faithful reprinting. I don't know how many of the f- issues they're going to reprint. I'm guessing it's like 12 to maybe 12 because they, they've projected three volumes. So for 12 this. to 12? 
Shut up, you. Uh, like three <laughs> volumes for this thing, which I don't see how it's going to be three volumes, but okay. Mm. Uh, cover price is forty nine ninety nine. Respect. Right. Boom does good archive archival work. Uh, but again, because you're in the know and you know where to go, DCBService.com, you can have it for fifty percent of that. It's twenty four ninety nine. It's already on order. That's the first thing I clicked on. Bing when I did my order. I must have Bing. this. Um, and the cover is uh, Malcolm McNeil, which is a great, great cover of a uh, – could be General Girl uh, leveling his gun right at the reader. It's great. Horses splashing through the water. It's amazing. Terror on the Planet of the Apes. you got to get it. Um, bringing up the rear, but only in uh, terms of the list. It's Valiant with Secret Weapons number one. They're finally going there with Secret mm-hmm. Weapons. Uh, written by Eric Heiserer. And the artist is uh, Helena Jurjevic. Really? Yeah, I don't believe we've seen any long-form work from uh, Ms. Jurjevic. I, um, I haven't. As far as I remember, just a lot of covers. A lot of covers, day. right. She's Marco Jurjevic's wife, for those wondering. That's true. Yes. That's true. Um, but I'm guessing this, this writer is an Academy Award-nominated screenwriter Okay. for Arrival. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, and, uh, oh, okay. It says he joins Harvey Award-nominated artist Raul Allen for Valiant's next so, prestige. I don't know why it says artist is Helena Jurjevic. Maybe she's the cover artist? Cover artist is Raul Allen. Maybe they screwed it up. They flipped him. They flipped him. But anyway, um, right. the government has dispatched Amanda McKee the technopath codenamed Livewire to investigate the ruins of a secret facility formerly run by Toyo Harada, the most powerful telepath on Earth, debatable, and f- her former mentor. Yeah. In his quest for world betterment at any cost, Harada sought out and activated many potential psyots like himself, those who survived, uh, but those whose powers he deemed to have no value to his cause were hidden mm-hmm. away at his installation. But Livewire, having studied Harada's greatest strengths and learned his deepest weaknesses, sent his opportunity where he once saw failure. Ba bum bum. Cover price is this sounds cool. I've seen the art. Looks great. Cover price three ninety nine. Your price one dollar ninety nine cent. Fifty percent off. DCBService.com. dot com. Don't be silly. Save money. Go there. Indeed. Yes. What a. So uh, after you uh, did so much talking, you must be parched. So Woo-hoo. what are you drinking? That's a segue. That's a segue. Uh, yeah, I'm. I hate to let you down, but I'm drinking the jug wine again. I doubt you do. Wow. Jug it's a wine. Big jug. It is. There's about three inches left in it. So start I'll, calling you Emmett Otter. I'll be having. Uh, <laughs> I'll be ha- I'll be having jug wine for at least two more episodes, probably three. Mm-hmm. There you go. Got you, Boo. I am drinking the uh, last of the Malbec that I was drinking last week, and uh, I don't have the bottle handy. So, the folks that are wondering what the brand is, you can go back and listen to last week's episode. Wow. <laughs> Do your research. Apologies. <laughs> I uh, I am good old standby. Some. Uh, Redwood Creek Cabernet Sauvignon, and because we uh, we've been troubling for a while before the show proper, I've been sipping on it. So I may have to uh, sneak away for a few minutes and 
get a yeah, top myself off. Check but the temperature. And Andrews. Uh, we, nah. Anybody got any thank yous? I do not. I, I can't say that I do. Okay. I'd like to thank comics for being particularly awesome, awesome. this week. Yeah. Well, uh, well, no, I, I mean I, the stuff that I brought to the table right, is yeah, awesome. The things that I was excited to read, the, the things that, I, that that made me happy to be a comic book fan, right. I read. Right. Uh, I, I kind of um, there, there were some things that were more or less homework. I was like, hey, wouldn't it be neat if we? And it's like, no, just shut the fuck up, dude. Just, just keep, <laughs> and that's really what somebody should have told me. So. Uh, <laughs> We'll we'll see if we get to those, but oh, in the we'll meantime, I would love to hear what uh, what what y'all enjoyed. Cool, as far as this week goes. I have one that's going to tug at your heartstrings. Everybody, right. mine in particular. Yes, Daps in particular. Oh, whatever, dude. Because <laughs> because it involves characters with which Dap has a long history and is very fond of. It's like uh, it's, it's Deadpool and Wolverine. No, it's not. <laughs> From Archie, from Archie Comics, this is a one-shot uh, written by Frank Thierry, mm-hmm. completely illustrated by Michael Walsh. Uh, he okay. did some of the color with uh, D. Kniff, and it is called Jughead, colon, The Hunger. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's in the, the vein of the... Uh, Sabrina, the uh, new um, Archie horror Life books, like Life. yeah, like After Life with Archie. It, it's not in the same continuity, obviously. What well, well, you'll learn that once I give you the gist on the book. But it's done in the same vein. Michael Walsh tries to keep it very close to what um, has been going down in After Life with Archie, and it, it, visually, it's very simpatico. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. But take note, like this was not written by. The guy steering the the Archie horror bus, uh, Roberto Aguirre Sacasa. This was written by mm-hmm. Frank Thierry, and I think he did a pretty good job. It, okay. I thought it was very exciting. Um, the 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 uh, setup is Riverdale is being uh, beset by a ripper, a murderer, and and when the book opens, the Riverdale Ripper has struck again. Uh, fortunately, separating Miss Grundy's head from her neck. Miss Grundy dies in very, uh, very disturbing fashion. And then, then they show the, the hands of the Ripper, which are very hairy, walking down the street, just holding Miss Grundy's head. <laughs> but it turns yeah. out that Miss Grundy was not the first victim. She's actually the third. Um, Pop and Ethel have both bought it at the hands of the Ripper. Not Pop. Yep. It ain't so. Hi, Pop. Um, oh. But, the, uh, I mean, Thierry checks off the required items on the Riverdale um, checklist. Jughead has a ravenous appetite, okay? The gang, the Archie gang goes to a, an all-you-can-eat buffet to take their minds off the, the, you know, the recent killings, but they only to be reminded that Juggy can't seem to get enough food in his belly. I mean, it's kind of graphic. He's just shut. He has a sandwich with, like, a fish hanging out of it and meat and, just like, vegetables and just all stuff on his plate. He's got juice dripping, dripping down his face, and they're all disgusted. But the the person that's disgusted the most is Reggie. Um, and there's this re- animosity between Reggie and well, everyone, but but mostly it's directed towards Jughead, um, and and Jughead seems to have fostered a, a like a festering anger towards 
Mr. Mantle. And, and after they've, you know, they almost come to, to blows, but they don't. Like Archie steps in and, and uh, Jughead vows that, you know, one day Reggie's going to get his. Um, there It gets really weird. Uh, on the way home from the Archie gang outing, Jughead runs into Dilton. Dilton Doily, right? And Dilton starts talking to Jughead. It's middle of the night, moon's above, um, you know, bluish hues abound. Uh, and Dilton just keeps talking and talking. And Juggy's senses are suddenly kicked into high gear. And he can smell Midge spraying perfume from like five blocks away and he can smell Reggie bringing flowers to Midge. He can smell the flowers and he can detect Mr. Weatherby taking off his shoes and Dilton still won't shut up, shut up, shut up, Dilton shut up. And Jughead rips Dilton to pieces because nice. because he's a werewolf. Love it. Yeah, he just transforms and just rips Dilton to shreds. But he doesn't know that he did it until the next morning when he wakes up and he's got pieces of Dilton in his blood-soaked bed like Dilton's arm just plop and plops out of the bed with his glasses thankfully the glasses were there because then he wouldn't know it was Dilton but um so Jughead doesn't know what to do what would you, what do you do my god I'm covered in blood there's blood on my sheets there's body parts on my bed what the hell do I do I got a problem he doesn't know what to do but he knows where he should go where do you think he should go to Archie right of course so he confronts Archie and he's like Arch I and before he can even broach the subject Archie goes, Jug, I know. It's like, and that kind of threw me for a bit. Because if Archie knew that Jughead was a murderer, Archie would have done something about it, right? But at the point where Archie found out, he saw, Archie saw Jughead rip Dilton apart. He kind of followed him. Mm. And so he he witnessed the whole transformation. and, and, And so, you know, what to do now? But anyway... Betty knows, too, that Jughead is a murderer. But like Jughead, Betty's kind of far more than she seems to be. They're working some kind of Betty Cooper werewolf slayer into this thing mm-hmm. because it seems that lycanthropy runs in the Jones family. Like even back from medieval England, that the Jones family had, had been rumored to have this curse. Um, and the Cooper family has a curse of their own and they need to extinguish lycanthropy whenever they encounter it. So like when when the Jones family emigrated from uh Britain to the to the New World, um the the Cooper family followed. So there's always wherever there's a Cooper, there's a there's a Jones. Uh-huh. You know, it's kinda neat. It's kinda neat. Um Betty thinks Jughead's garbage and she just levels a gun at his – like she kicks ass and she levels a gun at his temple uh, and that's all I'm going to tell you. It does not end in the way you would assume it to. Let's okay. Just, let's just say that. But as a one-shot, I was like, damn, this is how to do it. You know, take a familiar character, throw, some, throw a curveball, make him a werewolf – uh, and you're bringing in this whole group that we all know so well. So all the road work's done. Right. You don't have to introduce Archie. We all know who freaking Archie is. And Dilton and Mrs. Weatherby, uh, Mr. Weatherby and, and Miss Gre- Like they, These are familiar, well-known people, characters. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was great. And it's they don't like Afterlife with Archie, 
Walsh and company, they don't pull any punches. It's a really bloody book. It's it's not, um, you know, explicit to the point where you're seeing entrails fly all over. It's sure. like, it's not Tim Vigil. But for Archie, like, this is raw stuff. Um, and I'm going to put some images up on the Facebook. Uh, not on the Facebook. Well, maybe. I'll put them up on 11oClockComics.com. And you can see the double-page spread where... Um, Betty's going through the litany of like the Jones family and the Cooper family. It's an amazing double page spread. It's really, really well done. There's a werewolf with his arms extended and he becomes a, like a sort of a pseudo panel border in the middle of it. It's, it's great. You look, check it out. But I got to give like props to the, the Archie crew. They continue to win me over with these, these adult books that they're putting out. I love it. Yeah, and yeah. you know, no prior experience needed. You can get in on the ground floor of this one shot, read it, enjoy it for what it is, and move on. Will it be explored in further one shots? I don't know, but it's it's it. I think it's worth exploring. Like Jughead is a werewolf. That just excites me. Mm-hmm. And it's he's got that whole. Oh, yeah. He's got that Larry Talbot vibe where like you could tell he's not he's not enjoying it being the werewolf and you know he's actually remorseful for it so it's it's not like yeah i'm a killer man i'm gonna rip your throat out but you could also perceive that some of the anger of the wolf form is creeping into jughead's human form because like he threatened reggie and that's not jughead oh yeah that's not the jughead we know so like the the beast is coming into the man maybe the man will come into the beast i don't know we'll see but uh very very well worth the effort this issue Jughead the Hunger. Loved it. Nice. Respect it. Right up my alley, right? For sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's definitely your spot. Mm-hmm. Okay. I got more spots to cover. We'll do that later because I want to hear what you all are reading. He doesn't even <laughs> he let did. me. Uh, did you do uh, your homework, though? I did. You did? Un- unfortunately, yes, I did. Oh, no, you're talking about, did you do your other homework? What was the other homework? The uh, Marvel Retreat homework. Fuck. Um, Neither of you did your freaking homework. I did. I did the homework. I I I started to read because there were there were three different. Yes. And so I I, I started reading. I, I I pretty much finished the first one. I didn't get to read part two, and then. Um, but uh, no, I I don't I don't want to. Give it the short shrift. So, I mean, I don't know if it's something that we, we, but by next week it, it won't be timely. Correct. Well, uh, I mean, let's, let's, I, I have to be totally honest. What? I find the subject of, uh, diversity in comics. Well, it's not just that. Well, well that's, that's the small subject. Well, that, right. That's the part I focus on. I find that subject incredibly boring. I would rather I, I would rather talk at length about Michael Jackson than than diverse wow. than diversity. So diversity. I, because the, I, I really have I don't care. I have no concerns no, know, about and, that. And my my thing is I just want good stories. It does I yeah. I don't care what the background is, what the skin color is, but I don't want it I don't I don't want it shoehorned or jammed down. Just just tell right. All right, so right. Let, let's set it up because we well, we can't assume that our, our listeners all know what the hell we're talking about. That is true. Um I C V two, which is um it, there's an, in the ever dwindling realm of of uh, comics focused news sites. ICV2 is an industry news site. Uh, they cover like uh, geek stuff, so they cover industry news about uh, video games and movies and comics. And 
they're the ones that do like the analysis of the monthly numbers for, you know, the publishers and all sort of thing. But, um, for some reason, uh, Milton Greep is the, is one of the guys there. And, and so for some reason, um, Milton was given access to the Marvel retailer summit. And for those that don't know, that is, as you might imagine from the name, every year Marvel gets uh, a bunch of prominent retailers together um, and basically talks to them about the business and here's their concerns, their needs, tells them their plan, you know, tries to liaise with the direct market. And Milton um, was able to, att- maybe he attends every year, I don't know, but he attended the summit this year and wrote uh, a trio of articles on ICV2 about the meetings. And as part of that, he had a lot of direct quotes from David Gabriel, who was the senior vice president of sales and marketing at Marvel, and editor-in-chief Axel Alonso. And um, I have to say that uh, it's, it's been a bit of a shit, sh- shit show for, for Marvel, um, because whether or not they realized perhaps that, that some of the things they were going to be saying, which, keep in mind, they were saying things to a bunch of LCS owners, right? So I, I get the sense from seeing some of these quotes that they didn't think that these quotes would be widely disseminated that they were speaking to a specific audience without thinking about how it would sound to other constituents in the comics world. Most importantly, the readers and their artistic employees. But through a series of different comments about a series of different aspects of the industry, they have managed to create a bit of an internet storm around lots of things. Um, I guess from my vantage, most notably comments made by Axel about the importance or frankly, lack of importance uh, of art, of artists in right. the equation of which I penned, uh, a, um, sort of an undressing of Axel's comments, uh, on our site, um, which was, I think, well received, but the whole article fascinates me because for the most part, although Axel's comments are what piqued my interest, for the most part, the quotes in question come from David Gabriel. And, you know, I would say that uh, a lot of what he says is, uh, frankly got a lot of truth to it. But it's not pleasant truth, and it's not absolute truth, and it is a lot of spin. Because, again, of course, his job is to spin things to look good for Marvel to the retailers. But um, but I think there are some kernels of truth in a lot of what's been said, um, much of which has pissed a ton of people off. And as, as you noted, Vince, I think one of the things that has been uh, most widely discussed coming out of this is – they're essentially saying, and, and again, I don't want to paraphrase because I think the internet is full of people taking one or two words from a, a lengthy interview and then running with it as though that's gospel. But there was a lot of discussion about the idea that um, Marvel's push for what they're calling diversity in comics um, reached a point of saturation whereupon it seemed as though, based on the direct market, demand for and sales of those quote-unquote diverse efforts had started to turn around the wrong way. And as a result, they seemingly have concluded, which I think is their mistake here, that there isn't much of an appetite for diversity in comics. And that has understandably set off a lot of people because um, I, I think the interpretation is wrong. I think, I think the idea that, that there is not an appetite for diversity in comics is patently false. I think 
where the truth comes in is that, uh, and we've talked about this, not a couple weeks ago we talked about this actually, um, diversity for the sake of diversity, where it doesn't read genuine, especially when it's taking classic characters that mean something to your core base of readership and changing them, is not necessarily the best way to pursue a new audience or get diversity. Sure. And, and, and I think that's what's getting lost in translation here because... I think if Marvel has truly concluded that fans don't want diversity, I think that's the wrong conclusion. And frankly, definitely wrong from a longer term perspective about the industry. But if they're saying that the core base of people that still go to LCSs and buy, buy comics off the shelves don't want every one of their characters being turned into a woman or replaced by a young person that they don't know or, you know, having their sexuality changed bothers them. I think there's truth to that. I do think there's some truth to that because it has to serve a story. Right. Um, and so, you know, I guess it's like with many things, what was said comes off as offensive, but there is some kernels of truth to it. So it's not so much what was said, but how it was said. Right. Right. And I think we all share that view. Like, I mean, you know, Vince, I, I you know, I've, I've talked about moon girl and devil dinosaur a bunch and, you know, you had a, a now infamous rant about that when I first mentioned it, about how you thought it was stupid that they yeah. made, uh, is it, you know, and what was it really infamous? It was, it okay, was okay. People were, people were baffled by your comments. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but I think that's a genuinely good book. I do. I think it's genuinely good. And, and I, and I think similarly, I think, um, you know, I think Miss Marvel, Kamala Khan, genuinely good book. Um, but do I think, Gwenpool makes sense? No. Do I think, um, do I think like making Iron Man, you know, into Riri, it makes sense? No. And again, not because it has nothing to do with deciding to make Iron Man, uh, a young black woman. It's that the book reads so generic. Like it's a generic story with a generic new lead that just doesn't seem right. engaging or different, right? You, you look and at that's that, what I think it comes down to. Right. Kamala Khan is a genuinely interesting character. Someone that does represent a subset of readership that did not, wasn't represented before that. And she's just, she's an interesting, dynamic like, character on lots of levels. She seems believable. She seems uh, to have a, a distinct personality you know, her family life seems interesting and, and, and from what I gather, realistic to her culture and her faith. Like, that makes her a fully rendered dynamic character versus, like, let me switch, you know, let me switch a dynamic because it will... Like, it's the difference between crafting marketing, like like going on a whiteboard and saying, we need a character that fits this demographic so that we can sell it, versus a writer, giving a writer the opportunity to say... Just create a character that you think would be interesting to read. Right. Well, look at the flip side of the Riri thing. Okay. okay. You, you just shoehorn a woman into the Iron Man armor and expect it to click. But it was done decades before uh, with a man of color in True. in, in Rhodey, but it made sense because Rhodey had yep. existed for years in the storyline. Right. And then – took up the mantle of the war machine and it just felt like a natural progression. Like, okay, right. this is an evolution of this character. It's just not like, oh, Iron Man's black now. You know, it's just, it, they're, they're, like Jason Only said, you read Richards. There, there's a, there's a way to, there's a way to manipulate, uh, this artistic universe in a way that seems genuine and a way that makes it seem very calculated. And I think it's the calculated part that's turning off the people. Right. 
You know, they're well, being they're being told what to do, and no one likes that. Well, with mm-hmm. the and yes, and and I thought reading it at the time as it was happening, Rhodey taking over because it wasn't just like Tony Stark's deciding. Oh, fuck it, I had fun. Let someone. It, it, I mean, it was no what O'Neill was doing. Everybody was was you know. It's like, dude's an alcoholic. He's operating a very dangerous piece of machinery. He really shouldn't be. Um, Iron Man, and 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 it's 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 very similar to what was um, even before Rhodey became Iron Man. You had uh, John Stewart. John Stewart, right? Taking over, but and again, that's something else that made sense because. Um, with uh with with green lanterns they're they're space cops you can have you know i mean yes there there's one per sector um uh, but obviously um there's a whole court involved and 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 you have uh there's it, it's a legacy character so it, it wasn't quite the same but it was very very similar uh with riri and it and it go ahead no i could say you could have a sentient tomato be a green lantern if they were worthy exactly. enough yeah right. And could wear um, the ring, but the uh, with with Riri and and it was what I I, I read the first issue and, and I'm I'm waiting for Marvel Unlimited to to get them to to get a couple more issues so I can um, get in on that and 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 continue the story. But I know with because um, it was the same thing with with Infamous Iron Man and and there's Tony's not around, so it was whether. When I read the first issue, I, I wasn't, it, it didn't shock me to my core. I, I wasn't, I wasn't put off like, oh, here, here, here they go trying to, you know, cram some affirmative action down. It, it was, it, this was a character who was presented in a way that, 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 that she seems to be a, um, the, the, the air quotes, a rightful heir to, to Iron Man and it, and it, it, it worked for the character and it's not like she's, yeah, she is, I, I guess, taking Tony's place, but it's not like she's not taking it from Tony. She's not, she, she's not fighting someone for it. Or, uh, Tony's not around. So, um, in, in that regard, it kind of, it, whether I was justifying it or making, defending it, it, it that worked for me. Same thing with, with Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur. It's not like there was another Devil Dinosaur series coming out that, that, you know, now she's the star of or she took over from. It was just, no one was doing anything with Devil Dinosaur. So that, that, again, that didn't bother me. But when you have other characters, but even then, I mean, I could try to. Well, I'll bring up something that bothers me. And I, I was talking to Dap about this. It was in previews. Um, you know, Bendis, when, when Bendis brought the, old X-Men forward and all new X-Men, right? So like yes. we have the, you know, like, of course this was what I got maybe a year or two ago. It was revealed that the young Bobby was gay. Yes. And, um, you know, whatever, that's fine. Like Ben just made that choice. Like, cool, whatever. Um, but then as a result of that, the existing, like the existing Bobby, like our Bobby decides, well, not decides, but our Bobby then, comes to the conclusion that he is actually, that he's gay and he's been, uh, you know, did not, he's been denying his own sexual, you know, uh, preference. Um, and again, like, okay. Um, but then I'm reading previews and there's a new Iceman book coming out and the preview, the solicit 
is all about how um, Bobby is how awkward it is that Bobby is trying to talk about boy crushes that he has with his former girlfriend, Kitty pride and how awkward that is. And, you know, so I'm trying to like, I'm trying to take this as, okay. So like, I'm not a young gay man, right? So maybe this kind of story is like super appealing to a young gay reader. Like maybe that's great. And so if that's true, cool, like awesome. But then like the, the guy that's been supporting comics for 30 years says like, but why does it have to be like Bobby Drake? Right? Like, 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 and, and really the issue I had, and I was saying to Dap is I don't like, I don't, it's irrelevant to me that Bobby's now gay. What is relevant is that it seems like they are soliciting the book to be a young romance book. Like why, why is the solicit about him having an awkward encounter with his ex-girlfriend about boys he has crushes on? Like, do we ever read a solicit that says, Oh, uh, you know, uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, well, I'm trying to think of a, like, uh, Oh, uh, you know, Hawkeye, you know, uh, has an awkward encounter with, uh, you know, with Scarlet Witch because of, a, another hero and that he's got the hots for like, it's like, you know what I mean? Like that's the solicit for like a romance book. And that's cool. Like if it's a romance comic, let it be a romance comic. But like, why does it have to be Bobby then? Like, like why? Like, and I guess the answer would be, well, because if it was just some new character, no one would buy it. But I think that's where this discussion is so interesting with what David Gabriel is saying, which is like, but no one's buying it. If it's a character that you already know, right? Like, like if, if, if Bobby Drake Iceman means anything to you, are you more apt to want to read a story that's not written for you because it's still a character that you liked in its previous form? Like, I still think they'd be better. Like, why not make a book about if you want to make a, a, a young male superhero and have it have a romantic element because you feel like there's a market for that? Why not do a character like a Noel or someone like that that is known to be gay from the start and doesn't really have a history so that, like, we could all go on that journey together or not if we so inclined? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't know if I'm making any sense, but no, like, you, it just, no, it, it seems, it seems strange to me. And again, I always say about this, like, I know when we talk about these things, it's potentially risky because we are three 40 and 50 year old white men that are, home, that are heterosexual. Like, I get that. And like, I, I, I fully conscious of the fact that like I, I hope this doesn't come off as offensive or insensitive, but I'm saying like it just strikes me as odd because I guess if 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 in my mind if I were a young gay man I would be offended that the book that I'm getting that has a prominently gay lead character is being pitched to me as a romance book. Like why can't you just give me a book like Mar like DC did with Midnighter where the character is kick ass for a million reasons and happens to be a gay man. Right. Like that's just a, that's a component of his life. Just like uh, Clark Kent is straight and, and dating Lois Lane or married to her, depending on the book. Like, like sure. It's, it's a part of the story. Like Peter Parker has like you, like it can be a part of the story. Absolutely. Like that's all part, but it, but like, it's not a solicit about that. Right. Like, like that's not what the book is about. That's a byproduct of like their alter, their other life, their, their life is as a, you know, outside of the costume, he happens to be gay. Like, you well, know I, mean? I, I think know. that's very revealing because in that solicit, the focus is on the sexual orientation 
not on the character. Where the sexual orientation doesn't make the character. It's just a character like Midnighter who happens to be gay. So what? But when you focus on the sexual orientation, you reveal the plan. The plan is to make stories about a gay character and, and reach an audience that want to read stories about a gay character. That's that, I, I think that, that just like that pulls the curtain aside and shows the little guy with the levers, like, this is what we're doing. Like, I don't understand why the sexual orientation has to be a prominent feature of the solicit. It doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. It should. Here you go. Okay, so here it is. I'm sorry. So it's it's so ice, they're double shipping the book. So it's Iceman one and two. Um. So let's see. Okay, so. Um, okay, so here it is. So so this is it's actually the solicit for number two. Um, it is when a newly manifested mutant signals the X Men for help. Iceman teams up with Kitty Pride to stage a rescue mission, and surely nothing can go wrong. When you ask your formal girlfriend for advice on meeting guys while you're in the middle of a firefight, right? Uh, I mean, honestly, like, why would like that's why would he be asking for advice on dating guys in the middle of a life or death fight? Why does that even have to be inserted into the solicit? I don't precisely right now. Maybe the answer is because they think that will appeal to an audience looking for a young gay character. Right, there's, no, and, there's no maybe, right? But so and but but so I guess like the question is then is that is that does that then fly in the face? Of what David Gabriel is saying, which is that they've concluded that like there's not really a direct market opportunity for those kids, for for those kinds. Maybe of there's not a an opportunity in the market for ham-fisted attempts at at gay characters. Sure, right, sure. Yeah, and look, I mean, I, and that's just one example. It's a recent example. I'm not suggesting that it's the perfect example. I'm not suggesting it's uh, that other people don't see it completely differently than I do, and and that's. I'd love to hear if people do. I, yeah. I, I you know, no respect to other people's perspective here. I don't, you know. I, I think um, to to praise Valiant a little bit more, you got to give them props because if Marvel wrote the solicits for Faith, it would be like, yes, um, jump in on the continuing adventures of an overweight woman superhero. Like, it, hmm. you know what I mean? Like, the, the focus is not on the fact that Faith is overweight. The focus is on the fact that Faith is a real person who you know doesn't fit the mold of uh, or the the image of of what we have been choked to believe that you know skinny is beautiful and it's it's bullshit right but so they've they've valiant has never ever mentioned the fact that faith does not have a, a 24 36 20 whatever frame like the classic body type she doesn't she's not power girl She's a, a, a real right. person with a real body type, um, and they reflect that in the book. But they never use that in the solicits. It's not. It's not important. It's just this is the character of Faith, where Marvel would probably have exploited the fact. And that's that's a key word in this thing: exploitation. I think that that uh, Iceman solicit is very exploitative. It really is. They because they they throw the gay word in there. You don't need it. It's just it's just a ham-fisted approach. It's like me trying to write a book about an entire team of gay superheroes. I wouldn't know where to begin. So so you you look at the culture and you look at what is reported to be important to these people and you exploit that. And I, it would be wrong. It would be really really bad to read. So I wouldn't yeah. do it. But so Marvel should take note. Like get get people 
in who 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 know this stuff and and know this approach and can craft a uh, a, a story that doesn't seem exploitative that seems natural and organic and and then make it with new characters not with pre-existing ones that have never ever revealed or even we've never even assumed that Iceman was gay up until what three Bender said so yeah till Bender said so like it just didn't fit but I don't even think it fits for Warren Worthington either well he's not I thought you no, said no he's not but no Bob. no he's with uh, X-23 actually yeah he's with Laura oh well you mentioned two characters that were gay oh Bobby right Iceman I'm see, no, oh, Bobby no, and Bobby no, Bobby and Bobby um, right right now I would think you know if it was if if we were ever thinking, oh, you know, what if he Warren Worthington III from the early Butch Geistron X Factor days, I could see him, you know, because he was just he was with women, just you know, because that that that, that was the eighties, and you didn't want to come out. But it, it's you know, but there are that that that's a whole different type of what if thing. But yeah, I, I think yeah, it's. The way the solicit reads is not dumb. It's 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 a little pandering-y. It does. And I think there's plenty of room in comics for characters that aren't baseline, you know, human culture. Like, there should be room for every ethnicity and race and sexual preference and orientation. The, the medium is, is the most – the richest medium on the planet. You can do stuff in comics that you can't even do in movies. So, Absolutely. yeah, there should be a home for these characters. But when, when the approach is pandering and involves a retcon that immediately ignites, you know, what you're talking about, Willis, in, in the, in the reader, because yeah, yeah, com- yeah. comic fans are not stupid. And the majority, as we've come to, to learn, the majority of comic fans have been in this medium for a long time. New readers are an anomaly. Yes, there's a trickle, but the majority of people reading this books ha- these books have been reading them for a, a while. So when you say that Bobby's gay, you know what? Not the character that I grew up reading, and it's just the retcon raises the red flag. So that's not mm-hmm. the way to do it. Let's make new characters. Oh my God, really? New characters? Forget about it. I, no, I, I think new characters can work, but again, they have to work organically. Sure, right. yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you can't predict. You can't predict ahead of time, right? I mean, and you have to give things uh, some time to, uh, to to succeed, right? I mean, that's, right. that's well, the that's thing. the it's thing. Like, that's the, that's part of this too. You can't predict, and so in, in trying to stack the deck in your favor, that this book is going to click with uh, readership that's not among the norm. You can't plan for something like that, right? You can't. And and the flip side, as which when when Jason mentioned the, the solicit over the weekend, um, you know, I don't since speak for myself. I am not a gay man. I don't know what is going to click for someone. And and judging by some of the answers that Jason received when asking creators um you know what it's your favorite comic and uh reading some of those answers you know a lot of them were all this comic spoke to me this creative team did something i never saw done and 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 it you know it made me want to pick up a pencil it made me want to write it and i don't know if i mean i'm 
some, I'm glad something like this exists. It doesn't mean I have to read it, but I'm glad it's out there. And if it's going to move somebody to give it, I'm not saying it's going to get somebody in the store to give, oh, I'm going to write of all the comics. This is one I'm going to pick up. But if it, if it tells a story that clicks with someone and moves them to tell their stories or, or, or actually, you know, speak up or whatever moves them, then I, I'm I'm not I, I can't I can't poo poo the idea. But I, I think as far as the way it's presented and packaged, um that 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 may leave something to be desired. Yeah. Yeah, I mean so and I'm just gonna hit you guys with a couple of things that they said uh in short order and you tell me if you agree or disagree. Um so they First of all, they, they, you know, I guess there, there was a lot of discussion about diversity, and, and ultimately I think the conclusion was uh, kind of what we were saying, which is that it's diversity, there's demand for diversity, but it's about if the quality, if the, if the stories are quality or not. But they did reassure the, uh, they did reassure the retailers that they haven't forgotten their core characters. And, you know, you can read between the lines there because we know it's coming, and, you know, we know that basically a, a, a reboot's coming where, you know, essentially all the, they're kind of like re- going to reset everything. So, I think we're going to get back to the characters, the main characters as being the main characters, you know, Tony being Iron Man, you know, Bruce being the Hulk, all that sort of thing. And, uh, I, I, you know, I can understand for a new group of readers that being frustrating, just like we always say, like with DC, who has more of a history of different legacies, you know, some people house their guy, some people Kyle's their guy and so forth, so on. And, Wally versus Barry, like I get all that, and um, maybe that'll be the case with Marvel. But I do think this is in direct reaction to the fact that Marvel looked at DC, which was in the shitter commercially a couple years back, and what did DC do? They basically rebooted things and and started essentially pandering to their core audience of readers that from a certain demographic, which let's be frank, are us people that have been reading comics for thirty years, and they basically went back to making comics about. The characters that are nostalgic to us, those those same core, and it seems like Marvel's going to do the same thing. Now, I think that is a super smart short term business decision. I think it absolutely will help Marvel if they do it because it helped DC. I think it's a superbly myopic long term decision because we are eventually going to get old and die. And <laughs> if you can't get new people to read comics and love comics in the same way we did when we were their age, the industry is going to going to founder. Um, so selfishly, I love the idea of, of my Wolverine coming back. Love it, right? But like, but from a business perspective, I'm I'm not sure they shouldn't continue to try and strike a balance. Um, so a couple things they said that um, they understand the frustration with constantly going back to number ones, but the numbers don't lie, and that uh, there are only so many ways to boost sales and going. And number ones is a profound and proven way to do it, so they're not going to stop doing it. Agree? Guess agree with that? Um, it is probably the the one thing that stops me from reading Marvel. The the, the con- constant, the constant streams of number ones. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Uh, aside from but the I, fact that you know, other than Spider Man, I don't care about any of their characters. It's, you know, there's no Fantastic Four anymore. So if you're going to keep rebooting Spider-Man, I'm just not going to read it. Right. No. And it's and 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 yeah. And I did see that there's another there's a new Spider-Man series, which I guess is complementing the yeah, the Peter slot. Parker. Amazing. Um, I'm not thrilled with the 
Uh, I was going to say the I, I, I like half the creative team. Um, so I, I don't know if, and if it's this Peter Parker in this version, mm-hmm. I, I, I really can't say that I'm going to, um, jump to read this first issue. Um, I, I, I don't, I'm an old school fan where yes, I, I read, you know, I picked up detective comics into how many hundreds of issues, same thing with fantastic four, or, you know, so yeah. I don't, I don't care about the number. It's it, part of the fun for me was going back to find out why we're in this predicament and this issue 312. I don't, I don't care what happened before it. I'll find out. And that's fun. I know that they've made Marvel over the past year or so. If it's the beginning of a new arc, they'll put a number one in the corner opposite the issue number to let you know this is a new arc. This is the first part of this, of this story. So they, they still find a way to put that number one on the cover, even if it is issue number seven. Right. Uh, so no, I, I, I am not a fan of, of right. new number ones every year. And here's what Gabriel said. I'll just read you the quote though before you. Gabriel said, uh, uh, I'll be honest with you and tell you that we've tried to put uh, the same sales incentives, meaning like variant covers, you know, on issues 24, 25. They don't get a fraction of what the number ones do. That's a problem that we all have to bear together. And again, he's speaking to retailers at that point. Once you get to issues 15, 16, 17, what in the world do you do to get those numbers from being 40 to 60,000 unit books to 150,000 unit books even for a month? And listen, again, I, I I think that is true, right? I mean, we've just seen it time and time again. As, as, as frustrating as it is to, again, people who read these books for years and years and years regardless, uh, people don't, you know, the, the days like we used to do where we would go to a, and pick a book up off the shelf and have, you know, it'd be number 270 and you'd read it and then try and backtrack. People don't do that anymore. They, they don't, they don't, oh, if they didn't God. buy issue one, they don't buy issue three. It just doesn't happen. So I, I, I know where he's coming from. I mean, it, it, that, that pains me because there are so many ways to easily obtain those issues now than there ever were when we were buying comics off the stands. You know, it, you, can, it, you right. can open up Comixology, you've got trades, you've got so many options to find out what the hell happened before this issue you just read. And, and, and it just, it, it, the sales that don't reflect that People could do it's. I, I just if it's not handed to you, if it's not told to you, as as you're reading it now, it's just it it it, it frustrates me. Well, welcome to the current culture. Yeah, well, that, 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 that's, that's everywhere. Yes, thing, that's right? exactly. Right. Yes, you're absolutely. But, we can we can we can complain about it, but it doesn't mean he's wrong, right? No, he's like, not wrong. But there's a real danger when you play to the desires of the um, consumer. Look at the music industry. Uh, you know. Pre-processed bubblegum crap in the music industry has proven to hit a wide audience. So the majority of pop culture, as far as music is concerned, is that bullshit, boring, mechanical, hyper-produced, unlistenable bullshit music. And it hits with a large number of people. So if if he's thinking that, you know what I mean, we have to have the numbers. If you're thinking in terms of numbers, you're always going to pander to the audience. Well, to be fair, that is that is his job, right? I mean, he's in charge of sales. Right. So. so you're not going to have a vertigo. You, you are not going to create stories with a craft that elevates them beyond the lowest common denominator. At Marvel, it's just it's not going to happen because if you, if your eye is on the audience all the time and the numbers, you are going to produce 
a work that speaks to the lowest common denominator. So, yeah, you, you know, you you may be you may be winning awards in terms of sales, but in terms of artistry and and craft, you're just going to be doing the same boring garbage that everybody everybody meaning you know the the masses want to read. That to me is not exciting art. It's it's not endearing uh, comics. It, it's not worthwhile. That's why I don't read Marvel because mm-hmm. a lot of their stuff just seems like you know grist from the mill it just seems like sausage just keep grinding the shit out and there's a certain amount of people that'll always buy it but is it exciting is it is it revelatory comics no it's the same old crap Mm -hmm. maybe i'm jaded i don't know i don't want to sound like you know get off my lawn i'm the old man but in in the bronze age everything seemed exciting there, I mean, Spider-Man was different, and it took mm-hmm. chances, and they murdered, they killed characters, and, and right. So well, it, I, I, but again, I think that's a conundrum, right? Because I agree with you. I think they, we know. I mean, a lot of the characters that we hold dear now were made up on the fly. You know, Kirby sitting at his desk, sure, right? Just we need a story this this month. All right, I'm going to create this fucking character named Galactus and make crazy, per- you know, like like that's how it worked, right? But Again, the industry has evolved through, you know, a combination of habits, the direct market, competition, to be a thing where it's basically supported now by people that are, you know, back then these books were read by kids and were were, were tossed in the trash after. Right. You know, now we, we hold these characters dear. The reason we're still here, for the most part, is because we have massive nostalgic connectivity to these characters and their histories. That is a much different task for a storyteller to please us than it was when they were creating these characters off on the fly back then. So like, again, we can say like, we love whimsy, but the sales tell these publishers that we don't like whimsy. Yeah. I I have to be honest. I don't think the futures, um, characters that will be endeared to the level that we feel towards, you know, Peter Parker and Bruce Wayne. I don't think those characters are ever going to come from Marvel and DC. I think they're, yeah. they're going to come from com- companies like Image and Dark Horse and Boom that you know may not really well aside from Image may not really rack up huge amounts of sales, but they're they're going to get that core audience that expects a certain level of artistry and craft in their books. That is not. Pot- I'm not saying Marvel artists are bad or Marvel writers are bad, but their Marvel and DC are mainstream. Uh, primetime TV. You can only do so much and your audience expects a certain, you know, uh, level of commitment and craft and that's what they want. They don't want anything else. So mm-hmm. you can't fault Marvel and DC for giving the audience what they want, but in the end, that's not a long-term solution to, to you know, bolstering the comic book industry. Yeah, we- now the comments that uh, I think ignited the most furor and the ones that I took issue with uh, in our in a column this week were from Axel because they were talking about uh, you know again how hard it is to ignite sales and titles and Axel said uh, that there are fewer artists that impact sales than there are writers. Artists are harder to promote. It's harder to pop artists these days. There's no apparatus out there. There's no wizard magazine out there that told you who the hot top 10 were. We don't have that anymore. We can hype our artists all we want, but I don't know if we know 
how many artists, besides maybe McNiven and Quapel, oh, absolutely moved the needle on anything to be drawn? See, right there, now, half of his statement, he's full of shit. Right, and, and right. I mean, now, so now, needless to say, two. needless to say, um, even if he believes that, and even if there are some kernels of truth underlying some of the statements he made, which again are debatable unto themselves, but even if you believe that, it is unconscionable to me that the editor in chief of the largest publisher of illustrated sequential fictional work could be that dismissive of more than 50% of his employees. Exactly. exactly. Even if he believed it in his heart to be true, and even if within their suit executive meetings, they built the business under those presumptions, I can't believe he was willing to get quoted on that. It's stunning to me. Right. Well, you know, there is an ego of the living planet in, in the Marvel Universe, and that's Axel Alonso. Yes. And and I, yeah. I you know I think the dude I'll be I'll be totally honest I'm not going to win any friends I really don't care I think the the man is an incredible douchebag who who <laughs> undervalues the people in his employ writers and artists and I'll yeah. t- I have to be honest if I was let's just look at one of Marvel's big guns if I was Scotty Scotty Young I would say okay that's the way you want to play it I'm going to take my I'm going to take me, what, what, the stuff that I produce, and bring it somewhere else. And I think, sure. I think all of the people at, at Marvel, the, the, you know, should do that. Because if you have a guy at the helm that says, you know what, you're really not that all, all that important. Well, okay, let's just bring it somewhere else. Like Kirkman said. Yeah. Get your name at Marvel and get the fuck out. I well, okay, I, so I, he mentions, he, he mm-hmm. mentioned McNiven and he Quap mentions Quapel. Now, I don't, I don't know. The last thing McNiven drew, but I know Jim Trunk was drawing the clone conspiracy story. I know that you know. I mean, there's just you can you can rattle off yeah you a can. bunch of names and 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 like these are the two. I mean, never mind the fact that the, the wizard reference alone, but he well, there's the <laughs> yeah, really. and there and, I mean, and then there's boys. and and but you also have well, I mean, okay comic books. It's it's a visual medium. The fact that so you you had fuck wizard. Never mind. You used to in your own Marvel's previews tell us you had panels at conventions telling us these are young guns. Your young, next young guns. Young guns. You right. told us who the next hot artists were going to be, and now you're saying you don't have you don't know you. No, he's incredible. He's in, he's wow. He he's incredibly full of shit. And 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 self absorbed and just not all that pleasant to listen to. But I want to talk to Mock. This is that, that not really me off. What, yeah. ma- no, Mach I mean so real talk. But here's the interesting thing. And and you know, I mean, again, you had guys like Gabriel and, and Somni and Mahmoud and and many many artists came out and were, were openly and vocally upset by Axel's comments. And and you know, so in my column, I mean, one of the things I made the point of, which is shitty, like one of the things that's shitty about this is that. Unfortunately, Axel's comments are uh, – artists are more apt to take that on the chin than writers. It's all tied into the fact that writers can and do do more than one book. So, you know, Jeff Lemire just wrapped up at Marvel. We all know that. He's doing his own thing. You know, Rick Remender just uh, wrapped up at uh, – just wrapped up at Marvel and, uh, or I mean, you know, more wrapped up Marvel, you know, a year, you know, half two years ago to do his own thing. And, uh, you know, Hickman did his cinema Marvel. Now he's doing his own thing. But the thing is, is they were able to do creator own stuff while they were also, uh, 
doing stuff at Marvel, right? Jason Aaron does both, right? I mean, right. it's 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 a common thing. Uh, unfortunately for all of these artists, like they don't have that optionality. If they leave, they run the run the real risk, or they at least they are fearful of running the risk of burning their bridges, right? Because if Somni leaves to go to a creator book, he's not also staying at Marvel. He's leaving to do a creator own book, right? And if that book doesn't sell, uh, you know, you'd like to think that there would be good blood because he's a brilliant cartoonist. He'd go right back, but you know, you get a petulant editor in chief or a petulant editor and he could find himself struggling. And look, I mean, we know, we won't name names, but, but I know plenty of artists that have left the, the comfy confines of DC or Marvel to take a foray at creator owned. And it wasn't the success of a, of a, of a, I hate Fairylander. It wasn't the success of an East and West. Sure. East, you know, and, 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 and they couldn't get back in because their editors pissed at them because they abandoned them. Right. But and that s- sucks. Say, say you're, you're a Chris Somney. Um, there is – I would hesitate. There isn't an editor at DC that wouldn't want Somni on a Bat book. He's, no, you're, he's, you're, he's probably brilliant. right. And, and again, but, but, but you're right. But there are, what, 100 pencilers at Marvel every month? Right. That's the thing. You have to have so, a certain – So, yeah, may be above that, Fred. You're right. There, but, the, but, this, this only applies to a certain number of artists. You right. have to have – a particular level of acclaim for this to work. If you're one of the guys in the mid to lower tier, that you're shit out of luck. You just have to take Alonzo's comments and just keep working. Yeah, you know. Well, and that's the thing, right? I mean, with artists, you know, it, it, it it's it's the tail wagging the dog. It is much easier to promote a writer um, because a writer can do many books for you at once. Uh, a, a artist can't. It's it you know dual shipping. Which is the newest thing, you know? Well, not the newest thing, but it's, it's back in vogue. Uh, you know, you, you, it, no artist, even the fastest, can do two issues a month. So you're guaranteeing that there's no visual continuity in a book now, um, if you're dual shipping it. Uh, right. erratic scheduling, right? Like, like you, you, I mean, a, a writer can have a multi-year run on a book very easily, but they're going to have five, six pencilers over that span because artists get, you know, sh- shifted to different books. Um, you know, and, and even something that I brought up in the column, which I think is true, and, and this is a, something more about the media, you know, it's much easier to talk to writers about books to for most media because when you review a book, you're generally, most most reviews are generally focused on plot points. Plot, sure. Right? The the the, the language of, of the artistic side is, is more difficult and understandably so. It's, it's, it is harder to talk about that because you either run the risk of feeling like you sound like a poser because you're not an artist and you're not, well, at least I'm not. So you feel like you're kind of full of shit or you feel like you make it like you, you, you come off sounding like an academic because you're, you're being so specific, right? And so I get that. Like it's easier to say like, oh, I loved that character X punched character Y in the face, right? Like, um. Is, is there something wrong about elevating the fandom? Like I, mm-hmm. I, I often want to go off at length about one panel. Like look mm-hmm. at the look at the rendering in the fist when he punches that guy in the face, and and the this like the the energy lines that come off it. Just to go in to the craft of of comics and and go go deep on on one freaking panel, right? In doing so, you kind of condition your audience to expect that kind of stuff. Like when, just speaking in terms of this podcast, when I go off on a book. People know what I'm going to talk about, right? I'm going to go into the art. I have to because that's all I know. Yeah, the story's there, but the story to me is secondary. So sure. the commentary should should not 
again, I have a real problem with the lowest common denominator because mm-hmm. that's that's the milk toast shit. That's the stuff yeah. that's if you speak to everyone, there's something wrong with, with your commentary. I don't want to speak to every everyone. I want to speak to the people that really get it. And 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 I think Marvel and DC in trying to speak to everyone, they're not they're 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 doomed to fail. Because you're only going to get a certain amount, uh, a certain level of, of participation that, that the masses will accept. Look at the stuff that Josh Bayer and company are doing for Fanagraphics, all-time comics. That's not going to click with everybody. It's just not. But it, it's the same stuff. It's the same stuff Marvel's doing, albeit you know, with a, a slightly different approach. But in essence, it is the same it's superhero comics, right? One clicks with a large number of, of readers. One doesn't. Why? Because one company's focusing on the business and the other one is focusing on the love of comics. Now, I know Fantagraphics is a business before you, you call me out on that one. They have to make a certain amount of sales to stay solvent. I, I get it. But, but the, the, the impetus to producing those comics is a love of comics. At Marvel, it's just to make sales. Mahmoud's art is gorgeous, but if Mahmoud's art didn't sell books, Mahmoud would not be on that book, right? It's it's just all about ringing that bell and getting those sales. Sure, that that is a turnoff for me from the from the get go. Yeah, no, I mean uh, another thing I think that they really fail on is uh, you know they were talking about events and event fatigue, and retailers are really frustrated. And that's uh, true. And 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 Gabriel baffled me because he said. He said, well, what do you want us to do? Look at Secret Empire. You've got four months. I can guarantee you in the last two months, the sales are going to be down because they do on every event, in every story, and everything we do. So we have to look at that and say, we need something to prop up those last two months, not just for us, but for all of you, meaning the retailers. Yeah. That's where the sales idea for generations came from. Now, that is for those that don't know the new Alex Ross book that's going to come out. Then we're getting into the end of our year. We're going to have our secret empire, which is going to be down. You're going to have generations in the second month of September, which is going to be down because of the way things go. So we sat back and said, well, what's an easy thing to get out? And the retailers are like, one of the reasons like, that's insane. And he said, listen, I absolutely get it. Because when we put the catalogs together, we go out of our minds with, well, what's going to go on the front cover? What's going to go on the back cover? Which is the event event? What's the big event? And what is the story event? That we don't want to call story because that sounds lame and no one's going to want to buy something that's called here's a five issue story. And it's like I can't even fucking fathom that that I, I like I can't believe that they really believe that's the case. I will put forth and I will use us as examples. I read a lot of fucking Marvel and DC events over the years because they I was convinced that I needed to because I didn't see how I could stay connected to this universes, these universes that I love without these, reading these events. And slowly but surely, they ground down even me, and I think you guys too, to the point where I do not read events anymore unless, mm-hmm. like, I, I will get, like, I did not read Civil War II, I did not read IVX, I, you know, and, and I have no intention of reading Secret Empire. And now it's to the point where they are legitimate detriments to the other books I'm enjoying. Right. Like on Marvel, we talked about this on Marvel Unlimited. Like every one of the Marvel series I'm really enjoying got hit like a like a ton of bricks when it got to the Civil War two tie-ins. Yeah, like it it, it ruined the momentum. I'll be I'll be I'll be totally honest with you. I've been reading Marvel comics since 1970. 
when I get the previews from DCBS, it comes with the free Marvel previews. I take that Marvel previews and I throw it in the recycle bin. I don't even look at it. <laughs> I don't. Um, and and it's not you know a Marvel DC thing. I'm I'm reading DC books now because the books are good, and they feature characters that I know and love, and I've loved them since you know for decades. But the, and and I I love Marvel characters too. But there's something about Marvel like I I just managed to get a glimpse at the back cover of the Marvel previews for this month, and it says Secret Empire on it. Like, yeah, I I have zero zero concern for that storyline. I really don't well, care. And another point I I made with, is with, relative to these events is. You know, all of the success of all this stuff, whether it was part of it was luck or timing, like it has to be real, right? Like, like Jason Aaron is Jason Aaron because he's a talented freaking writer, right? You know, Scott Snyder, real talk, is Scott Snyder because he got a shot and he crushed it because he has he's a good writer. Like Marvel can try all they want to give Charles Soule or Nick Spencer an event. No, but 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 you you can't mandate stars. No, you can't. Uh-uh. They have to become stars because of their own talent, right. and then you can leverage them because they're stars. Right. What works in the music industry does is not going to work in comics. You can right. you can cultivate a star in the music industry. You just have to have an attractive enough person who can you know of of. You know, baseline talent. You can mold that person into a star if you wanted to. With comics, it's different. Um, yeah, and you're right. I, I think. Do you think Alan Moore could have been created? No. No, of course not. No. Uh, even you know, Grant Morrison could not have been created. They created themselves. But Charles Soule and Nick Spencer, they are never ever going to be that level. Regardless, well, even to that point, regardless like of what Wilson Marvel in response to, uh, to all of this, you know, who, who, uh, you know, created Miss Marvel, Kamala, you know, she made the point. She's like, you know, she basically called bullshit on it. She's like, you know, like Kamala Khan wasn't some grand plan to add diversity in the Marvel comics. Right. It was honest. Like for those that don't know, G. Willow Wilson is, is, is Muslim. She's right. a Muslim woman. And she was like, I had a chance to write a book. And I did a, wanted to do a book about a young Muslim woman because there were no comics like it, and it became a hit. She's like, it, it, that was, there was no grand plan, no mandate to do to create diverse comics to sell diverse comics. I created a character that resonated with me, and we found an audience for it. And then it became a thing, right? Like, and that's exactly right. You know, I mean, I think that's the thing. It's like you just can't force these things. I, no, I don't know. No, they can't. Um, you can't manipulate your audience like that, dude. They, and so and you can smell it. a baffling one: trade pricing, right? So a lot of the retailers were frustrated because they said, you know, trade pricing from Marvel's out of hand. And this is <laughs> so, <laughs> so they were like, all right, here, here, the retailer said, to use a prime example, coming up with Inhumans, the Paul Jenkins J. Lee Inhumans is $34.99. It's a 304 page graphic novel. By comparison, Batman Along Halloween is a 340 page book and it's $24.99. Yep. And Gabriel responds, two things there. If those prices came down, we're going to run the problem that people are going to jump ship from the comics just to the trades because the trades are going to be 50% cheaper to buy than the comics. We're always stuck in that quandary. First of all, it's total bullshit. <laughs> no, the trades and no. the hardcovers are selling now are more per issue than the issues. Can so I just interject here for a second? Mm-hmm. This is the problem that CrossGen encountered. CrossGen was making their trade paperbacks very affordable 
to the point where I believe it was like a dollar an issue. And okay, well that's dumb too. I mean, you can't, you can't. That's the other extreme, right? I mean, well, it, I mean, they were they were, and then they were doing that Forge compilation and Edge, where right? They, where they would yeah. take the the you know maybe two months ago the Valiant book or the the Crossian books and package them all together in a in a in a low priced digest book, and the digests were selling decently, but the singles suffered. Because right. who wants to pay? Why are you going to buy those? Why yeah. would you buy two ninety nine? Would you get it for a buck? Who want the instant gratification? So oh, I got to read this now when it comes out, and that's not enough people. When everybody just wants to read the story, right? And they're going to wait for the trade or the compilation. Again, the cross gen books were were very well done, but on their own, new characters hitting you know a market that's saturated with Marvel and DC, it was rough, and and the trade paperbacks were selling better than the the single issues. But when they started that that forge and edge, I think they dug their own grave because nobody waited I for agree. the single issues and they killed themselves. Yes. So I, I understand that you can't make the the trades, you know, lower priced than the single issues. But we have the benefit of discount comic book service where we get them for like fifty percent in in most cases, Marvel and DC. Truth be told, I wouldn't buy them if they weren't fifty percent. Like I sometimes dip. Well, but see, yeah, yeah, I don't even agree with like I don't agree with what you're saying because I, I think you absolutely can make the trades less expensive per issue because number one, the premium for the issue the issue should always be the most expensive because you're getting theoretically it's for the people that can't wait they want them right then and there. Uh huh. So I don't think you should make you know if it's a, if it's a six issue series and your comics are three ninety nine a piece. So it'd be twenty four bucks for the trade. I don't think you should sell the trade for ten bucks. No, that's bad business. But it is. I don't think you should sell it for twenty nine ninety nine either. You're right. See, I think Dark Horse has the right approach with the Matt Kent books, where you get extra stuff in the in the singles that does not appear in the trade. If Marvel took some of that bullshit advertising out of the books that nobody reads anyway, and put like sketch pages, because there has to be ephemera associated with these books in the creation of them. There has to be sketches. There has to be... I'm not talking scripts because that's bullshit. Nobody reads those anyway. But yeah. just, just like some kind of visual carrot on a stick that could get somebody to buy the singles. Don't put that stuff in the trades and then sell the trades in... Uh, price the trades in accordance to the singles. Maybe like, you know, make it enticing but not... Like you're not going to do a dollar an issue. That's just not going to work. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, and then, and then the other thing that he said, which is weird, because I understand where he's coming from, but it, it contradicts something else he said, which is that a bunch of retailers were like, "Well, why don't you instead of doing these events, which have got people tired out, why don't you just do maxi series, like just put out?" And then, yeah, uh, and then Gabriel said, "I'm going to tell you, the limited series is the death knell. Ooh. The only place that it hasn't been a death knell, which is amazing, is on the Star Wars stuff. Anytime we've called something a limited series." It did not hurt the sales at all in Star Wars. You call anything else in the Marvel Universe a limited series, it's dead on arrival. Uh, and then Axel said, I agree. I would love to be able to release limited series. There would be nothing more reassuring than that because it means that I can create a team and say, all right, you've got 10 issues. You've got 12 issues. Write it. You know where your ending is. Get it done. You're now, first of all, it's ironic. It's, first it. of all, it's <laughs> ironic that Axel said write it because, again, it just shows his pension for yes. totally yeah. spacing the, the sure. artist, artist part of it. But – but so so listen again. So as someone who hasn't paid as much attention to numbers lately, but has paid attention, they're right. The the market does generally limited series have generally been shitty sales. But I would say though, 
I don't see how they can have it both ways. If if we're in a world where they need to continuously renumber series to get people interested, isn't that essentially the same thing? Well, I, like if I'm getting twelve issues of Moon Knight and then you're going to give me a new volume of Moon Knight, sorry, number one, isn't that essentially giving me a twelve issue limited series? Of yeah, Moon the, the solution is right in front of their faces. If they're so concerned with the television arm of Marvel Universe, like with the Netflix stuff, don't call them limited series. Call them seasons. Yeah. There you go. And, and that ties into the, 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 the focus on the visual uh, with the televisions. Just call it season, uh, Moon Knight, season one. Boom. You're done. The reader, okay. the reader doesn't have to know when it ends. It, it, will, mm-hmm. it will end. And then you get season two. Yeah. It's just, again, it's a focus on ridiculous stuff. I mean, I, that's how Dark Horse does it with the Buffy and the Angel and the, the other mm-hmm. stuff. And they seem mm-hmm. to be selling, re, you know, relatively well. I, I, I whenever you, you take me out of the, the art and put me into the business, it's just uncharted waters with me. I, I just, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm uncomfortable talking about this stuff. No, I got you. I got you. Yeah, it just it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and I'm really not concerned with a lot of it. But uh, again, I'm not the the lowest common denominator. I don't want Avengers every month in a certain way. You know, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But no, that that's fine. That, that's uh, we're all good. <laughs> no, I'm saying like I, I mean that 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 would definitely enough business talk. I just uh, it's just interesting to me. Like I felt like they made a lot of statements and and like they've managed to offend a lot of different people. Like, they have all in one fell swoop. You know, I just uh, uh, it's just I don't know. It's, it seemed odd to me that that I can only conclude that they did not think that their commentary was going to be disseminated widely outside of retailers. Right. Well, then you know, don't say it then. Yeah, like you know. Well, I mean that's. The retailers are Marvel's customers. That that that's the, we're not we're the retailers' customers, and and so if it, it's, I mean, maybe don't make it available to the public outside of make it a closed door session. But I mean, there's nothing. If Marvel wants to talk to the people who's who are their their main customers, then then I can't. I, I can't tell Marvel not not to do that, not not to get feedback from the people who are buying your product. Right. Sure. I think Marvel should really look to Image because Im- Image Image has managed to to hit to strike gold with you know a very few of their properties. Like, is there a book out there that like Saga at Marvel that managed to just reach a whole bunch of people? A new book that reached a whole bunch of people. Straight out of the gate, like there's there's nothing at Marvel like that, right? And yet, but yet, for as many sagas as Image publishes, there's a bunch that you know they come and they go, and you never see them again. So right. you, you have to there there's a a level of um, I don't know what the word is redundancy with Image that yeah you're going to get a lot of series that are just mediocre, but at least they're not they're not baseline. They're different, but not everything's going to catch on. I'm done talking mm-hmm. about this. I'm finished. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's get back to the comics. I am. I, I am going to refill my glass. Wow. Okay, Jason. It is like that. What y'all reading, Jason? Well, uh, let's see. Um, we'll save that for when Dad gets back, because we already read it. Um, I caught up on two series 
this week. Um, and you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna throw some some love to Manifest Destiny. Nice. Um, I've talked about this book several times, but admittedly, it's been a long time. Uh, in fact, I was a full year behind, and I read volumes three and four of the series, which are uh, 12 issues. Um, it's uh, co-created by Chris Dingus and Matt Roberts. Um, and for those that don't remember, it is an awesome, it's a really, really interesting story where it's uh, it's it's essentially a story of Lewis and Clark exploring uh, the U.S., but it's not the U.S. that we're used to. Basically, they most of the crew thinks they're on an expedition just to chronicle the land uh, under normal exploratory circumstances, but um, they know that they're actually there to, uh, under President Jefferson's orders, to that there's a lot of weird shit going on in the land, and they're there to chronicle it, see if it has any use, and to eradicate it if it poses danger. And, uh, you know, I took you through the first two, two arcs when it came out, uh, and there's just crazy stuff. Like, they come across, you know, uh, you know, like bipedal, uh, you know, buffalo minotaur creatures. They, they come across, uh, uh, you know, a, a sentient plant life that, that turns people into, like, pod plant creatures. Yeah. They, uh, you know, they run into all sorts of things. And, and they, they also, uh, you know, come, they, they befriend Sacagawea, who's like a total badass, uh, on every level. She's, she's a, a badass hunter and tracker and, um, we get to know the characters really well. I mean, they, they are, they are, there's a lot of, uh, of, of, of dynamics between Lewis and Clark and, 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 uh, they have a couple women that they end up, uh, get putting on the ship with them, um, by virtue of the second arc where about lunch people, lunch people were living on a, in a fort and that fort gets destroyed. So, um, in the third and fourth arcs, uh, the third, the third arc is, um, I think the most interesting of the bunch, uh, in that, uh, they, they come across a bird, little bird-like creature, like a blue, uh, it almost looks like, I don't know, if you, if you made it an Ewok with a, a toucan, I guess, like, it's like a blue feathered pygmy-like creature that's bipedal, uh, they capture it, uh, but then it comes to find out that this creature is like intelligent. It actually speaks English and they're baffled by that. And it turns out that they're there. It's an alien species. It somehow went from their, their planet somehow got transported to our planet. Some many, many, many moons ago and has been living on our planet and their apex predator from their planet. One of which came over with them. They have a thing where they basically sacrifice one of their own every two weeks to keep the creature at bay. But Lewis and Clark and their crew um, decide to take that creature out in exchange for one of their crew back because these bird creatures have captured one of their crew and are planning on eating him because humans are delicious. <laughs> um, but it's a fascinating arc because they team up with the bird creatures and you know they they do battle with this with this 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 uh, it's called a, va- a vameter it's called um Vince, you would love it it's from a creature design it's it's like a giant man bat type of creature Ooh. but for some reason 
it's it's like a it, it's a it's a uh, it, it has a symbiote. It's like a a parasite, and so it needs the heads of other things to survive. So it's got these like alien like uh, like tendrils, like from like uh, like Giger Giger like tendrils, where the neck would be. And it rips off the heads of things and puts the heads onto a proboscis, and then these fingers like wrap the head around, and that's and it and it lives off of the the brain of these of, of its of its prey until it starts to die out, and then they have to do it again. Nice. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, so I like that. Yeah, it's really crazy. Um, I have volume the, three, right? The, yeah, and and like oh, I should have said like when they first capture this bird in his defense of himself, he he bites one of the crew. And the bites are like toxic and septic, and the guy's gonna lose his arm, and it's nasty looking. And then the, the, when they start realizing the bird is sentient, they try and kind of come to terms with him. Um, the guy's like, "You, you, uh, you know, you can't make friends with this thing. Like, he, he just killed me. Look at my arm." So the bird pees on his arm, and the pee heals the wounds. <laughs> it's like it's crazy shit, dude. It's like crazy. Mine stuff. does that too. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. baffling. <laughs> but it has a heartbreaking gut-punching end this arc mm. like it's it's just it's so dejecting the end of this arc based on it, it just was such an emotional roller coaster that robertson didn't just get take us on and I, i'm not going to give it away because i want people to read it but it was fantastic and then the fourth arc is by far the most pure plot driven like there's not as many um like crazy visuals in the fourth arc because the fourth arc actually takes us back a few years to another group of explorers, pioneer men who have essentially gone through a similar bout where they were on a boat. And over time, the different creatures that they come encounter wipe out their men to the point where now the remaining crew are holed up in a makeshift shelter and it's winter and they have no food and so they basically resort to being cannibals because it's the only way they can survive. And they encounter Sasquatch. But the Sasquatch in this book are um, Cyclops. They're one-eyed. And that's significant because if you've been reading the book from the start, the reason that Jefferson sends Lewis and Clark on the mission is because when they made the land deal, the person that brokered the land deal brought back to Jefferson some artifacts, including a Cyclops skull. And now we realize that the Cyclops skull was, in fact, the Sasquatch that are indigenous creatures to this land. And so through the juxtaposition of the prior group of, of explorers, we learn not only about the Sasquatch and what they're all about, but I think we get a glimpse into who may be the big bad of everyone. Um, and again, I'm not quite sure there because it's more of a tease, but there's definitely some next level shit going on. Now I should say that everywhere that they've explored throughout all four arcs, there are these arcs that appear and they're, they're, they're meant to look like the St. Louis arch. Um, each seemingly when they come across an arch, usually it's organic made of some substance. Like in like in the third, in the third arc, it's made of dung. Um, in the second arc, it is, uh, Made of, it's underwater and it, uh, it, it's full of, it's, it's basically like a reef. 
and uh, a bunch of different eggs are like implanted on the reef. But um, but every time they come across one of the arches, they they know that shit crazy shit's going down. Um, and and we start to understand in this fourth issue a little bit more about these arches and what they are and why these crazy creatures exist near them. So the books progressed really well. Each arc is a distinct, wholly different take on things, uh, different emotional beats. You've got really, you've got that classic setup here. Like you'd find in a lot of books where you're talking about long explorations where the, the crew gets restless and they have to constantly fight against mutiny. Um, you've got, you know, tragedy, but, but it's, it's wrapped in this wonderfully, illustrative artwork and creativity by Roberts where he just has just zany, wildly creative creature designs. Uh, and, and, and it's, you know, it's a raw book. I mean, like nasty shit happens again. We're talking about golden showers here, people. I mean, like this crazy, or I mean, there's crazy stuff that goes on in these books. Um, but it's just, it's super fun. And I honestly have no idea how it's selling. I don't know. It's a big commercial success, but I, I do, it's one of those books where I, I, I got so far behind and, and after powering through two two trades this week, I don't know why I let myself get that far behind because it's just fantastic. Every issue is 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 better than the next. So um, you know, kudos to those guys and, and by all means, you know, if if you're not on this book at all, you should take take the opportunity to jump on it soon. Yeah, I gotta get caught up. Yeah, man, when you see that creature dude, the the the, the vameter, I mean it's so crazy. I mean to see him like rip heads off of things and like put it on itself so it can like exist. And it's got Nuts. like like finger like tendrils that around yeah. the neck that just pull the head. Yeah, it reminds me of like like a geiger, like the like this crab like appendages yeah, on like the kind of yeah, yeah yeah. You're right. Mm-hmm. No, I, I'll get caught up on this. I got I, mean, I have him on the stack. Yeah, yeah. And we'll we'll we will see Mr. Roberts uh, at HeroesCon. Yes. True. Yep. So, what do y'all got? I got more, Dap. You got some? Go for it. Really? Yeah, really. Wow. Well, I teased something in my uh, cover treatment column for this week. I put a bunch of Infinity covers up on our site, 11oClockComics.com, and I asked uh, readers to guess what uh, the the identity of the book that actually inspired the column. And I don't think anybody – well, one person uh, bit, but they were wrong. Um, uh. And the, the book in question that inspired um, the column is The Heap, Volume 2, mm-hmm. published by P.S. Art Books uh, in conjunction with Roy Thomas. That's a name you should know. We all should know, right? Um, the cover is done by Frank Bruner, mm-hmm. who, if you remember – um, drew what character, Jason? This dick. No man thing. Come on. No kidding, dude. How yeah. am I gonna steal that? I'm just, I'm just kidding. Man thing. Uh, so it seems entirely fitting that Bruner should uh, tackle the heap. Um, this book is uh, there's an intro by Roy Thomas. It's illustrated by Carmine Infantino, Ernest Schroeder, Leonard Starr, Mike Roy, John Belfi, and Paul Reinman. Written by Unknown, but probably the work of Hillman editor Ed Cronin. Uh, and like I said, published by PS Art Books. For those who don't know, The Heap was a character that was created for the backup stories in Hillman Periodical's Airboy comic. And if you're a longtime comic reader, you know that Eclipse Comics revived the Airboy character and The Heap 
in a series of of books in the in the eighties. But anyway, uh, the Heap is a World War One German flying ace. Yep, it, it's fitting, right? If you're going to be in the pages of Airboy, you, yeah. you better be a pilot. Uh, his name is Baron von Emmelmann, and the guy was shot down by Allied forces in the skies of Poland. His plane goes down, crashes in a swamp, and through some bizarre transmogrification of man and plant, he becomes a shambling muck monster known as the Heap. Um, but also like the man thing, which came much later, most of the Heap stories only feature tangential appearances of the Heap, like... The, the 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 human tableau unfolds around the heap and he kind of steps in at the end during the unraveling just just like the man thing but um oddly it's the pre-monster man of baron von emmelman that kind of links all the stories uh, most of the stories in this volume like there'll be characters in the story that either knew the baron or were inspired by the baron like the baron has a connection in each one of the stories for example there's a story called The End of the World Cafe, which was published in October 1948 in Airboy Comics number f- volume 5, number 10. Um, it's really weird stuff. You have a high-profile American actor and his girlfriend. They journey to this mysterious cafe that's nestled in the South African jungle. And it's a place that caters to clientele with very particular and eccentric tastes you got smugglers in residence avant-garde artists adventurers um dancers like basically if you got the money the doors are open uh so the the place is presided over by a mr london and um when we first see the the cafe in walks rudy waldorf he's the actor and he's got his babe Wanda with him. There's crazy dancing going on. There's a couple of pilots in the quarter uh, cha- uh, sharing war stories. Um, and Waldorf's kind of miffed because Mr. London, he's a proprietor, didn't fawn all over him. Like he's an American actor. He's like, what? This guy doesn't know me? What the hell's going on, right? So not long after Waldorf enters, an Air Force captain, Ingersoll, enters with his buddy, uh, someone who flew with him during the war, and the the buddy is a gorilla dressed in a tuxedo named Albert. What? <laughs> a, a, a gorilla that flew in in the war. A gorilla that's a pilot. Like what, what the hell's going on here, right? So Waldorf fusses over a dancing girl, and Waldorf's girl Wanda takes a shine to Albert. And she gets the gorilla drunk. And she makes, she makes the gorilla do things that are totally out of character. Like, for a gorilla, I guess. Um, so while all this is going on, a procession of pilots, you could tell they're pilots because they all got the aviator helmet on and the jackets and whatever. They, they walk in and the, the guy leading the procession is carrying a model airplane. And he carries it over to a seat of prominence and he gently places it on the seat. Uh, and, and you don't know what, like, Wanda tells Albert, go sit in the seat. Go on, go sit in the seat. And the, the, the people are like, no, 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 the gorilla can't sit in the seat. It just can't. She's like, oh, do it for me, Albert. 
you big gorilla, <laughs> go sit in the seat. So the gorilla sits in the seat and everybody gets pissed off because the seat was reserved in honor for the dead Baron Von Emmelman. Like all these people in the place knew him or, or, or knew of him and this is his, his seat of prominence. So every, the, the shit hits the fan. Everybody goes crazy because the gorilla is like, I, I, I have to laugh. A gorilla in a seat it makes everybody go nuts. There's, there's a storm outside. The place gets hit, hit by lightning, right? Um, Albert sees the heap who walks in, starts fighting with the heap and reverts to his primal nature. And um, Wanda tries to break it up, dumbass girl. So the gorilla kills Wanda, chokes her, rips her, kills Wanda. Waldorf gets killed because like the ceiling beams are burning and they're falling down and they kill him. The place burns to the ground. Everybody runs out. The last panel, the heap is sitting in the Baron Von Emmelman chair. <laughs> That's the last panel. It's, this shit is so weird, right? But um so we're told that the, you know, like I said, Baron Von Elman's plane goes down over Poland and that's how he turned into the heap. But every story kind of tweaks the origin a little bit. Um there there's the the very next issue of Airboy Comics number 5 Volume 5, number 11, which was published in uh, November 1948, there's a story called The Iron Duke of Gallica. Now, the Iron Duke is a dude who rules over a part of Poland. Uh, he expects everything from his people. Like, we're talking like 1600s. He wants, you know, taxes, money, fealty. Uh, he wants their lives, basically. But when he finds out that the people of the village of Wasau were burning their grain to keep it out of his hands. That's how much of a dick this guy was, that the, the farmers would actually burn their produce lest it get in the hands of the duke. So he flips out. He's like, fuck you people. You're done. He orders the, the death of every man, woman, and child in the village of Wasau. So flash forward. We're talking maybe 1943. Um, the incident uh, has grown in infamy, and um, the the origin of the Baron is retconned a little bit because when his plane went down in the in the swamp over or, of Poland, all uh, he landed in the vid village of of Wasau, where it was anyway, and this is where it gets really weird because the Baron's body was was thrown from the plane and, you know, obviously n near death, the spirits of the dead children that the Iron Duke had killed presided over the body of Baron Von Emmelman. That's nuts, right? And all the kids look the same. Th these are ghosts, right? But the, the, the ghost kids of, of Wasau are drawn with, they all have red hair and they all wear in diapers. Like, if you're a ghost, what the hell do you need a diaper for? <laughs> right? So you have all these ghost babies around the body of Baron von Emmelman, and they, they've singled him out for greatness. They are the ones that initiate the transformation from man to, to muck monster. And then from there on in, the story proceeds in a typical fashion, like, wouldn't you know it, a, a descendant of the Iron Duke comes to Wasau 
and everything goes to hell in a handbasket. And the, sh- the heap shows up at the end and, you know, it, it's, a, it's a typical ending. But the, re- the, the origin gets retconned and tweaked through the entire book. In the story that appears after it, Mother Nature pops up and tells the heap like, yeah, I'm the one. Who, who changed you? So they, they really – they couldn't keep a, a creative team on the book, of a visual uh, constant anyway. Like I said, Carmine Infantino did some. Leonard Starr you know, did some. But when Ernest Schroeder comes on, he stayed on the book or on the, the backup till the end. And, and he is widely regarded as the good – like Carl Barks is regarded as the good duck artist – Ernest Schroeder is regarded as the good heap artist. But I got to say, the, I love these kinds of stories. They're so off the wall, like ghost babies. <laughs> w- what could possibly have gone through the writer's mind where he said, you know what? Let's make ghost babies the reason that Von Emmelman turned into the heap. Like, how do you draw a line between the heap and ghost babies? It's just so off kilter. But that's what's great about these stories, that they don't follow other than the heap coming in at the the end of the story to, like, clean house. They don't follow a progression. There's one story about a brother and sister con artist who decide to manipulate – like, the sister's gorgeous. The brother's, you know, kind of mousy. The sister's gorgeous. So they kind of they, – they decide to manipulate the organized crime bosses by making – both of these bosses fall in love with the woman and then she'll reveal the fact that the other guy is trying to horn in on the other guy's territory and they'll kill each other and um, they'll rule the criminal underworld. And it works to a certain point, but the woman bites off more than she can chew and ends up being manipulated by the heap and she dies. And that's like every story. Like there's a The story proceeds to a point and the heap's not even in it. Like if you didn't know any better, you would think it was like a crime drama or a slice of life story or, you know, something like that. But then the heap shows up at the end and you're reminded like, oh, yeah, I'm reading the heap. OK, I see where it's going. The heap's going to clean house and everything's going to the person's going to die. And that's how it works. There's a dude who's horribly disfigured and he just hates everything of beauty. If, if you're beautiful, you're dead. He's going to kill you. And then the heap shows mm-hmm. up at the end and takes care of it. You know what I mean? So it, amazingly engrossing, but you're waiting for the heap to show up at every story. So if if that's you know that's not a problem with me, I have all three volumes of these. I just can't get enough of them. These PSR books, and Roy Thomas does a, an amazing uh, intro. If you are not. Um, knowledgeable on Hillman Publications or The Heap. Like, to say Roy Thomas is exhaustive in his data on comics, that's a bit redundant. Coming, You know, we read Alter Ego. We know how much the guy knows, right? <laughs> <laughs> but but he just lays it all out. Like, this is what happened. These are the... This is the, the, the company. This is what they did. These are the people involved. Here's a couple of interviews with um, the pertinent uh, individuals like um, Ed Cronin and Ernie. Sh- Ed Cronin was the editor of Hillman Publications, and he has since passed on. And no one knew because he didn't sign his work that Ernie Schroeder was the artist from a certain point of the Heap stories on. So um, Roy Thomas gets Herb Rogoff, 
who actually worked with both gentlemen and he does a little character study. He tells you about both people and what they did and how they approached the medium and, you know, what they were like. So you get some historical information um, in addition to the reprinted stories. And uh, I got to say, uh, all the original art for these stories are either in the hands of private collectors or, you know, unavailable for, for scanning. They have scanned these things from the, the printed comics and they must have the same formula as Craig Yo because they look great. I mean, yeah, you can tell that they were scanned from original comics, but the the it, the presentation is not lacking in any way. Like unlike Craig Yo, they don't leave the paper color behind the panels. They go in and take that all out. So your backgrounds are pristine white. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are just great books and um they're invo- they're offered in two different flavors. Like you can just get the hardcover, which I think is like fifty bucks around there. But you can get a slipcased, upscale hardcover that usually, more often than not, has a, a a plate of the cover that's autographed by the cover artist. Like for like sixty five bucks. I don't have those. I wish I did. But get to, on it to get. I already have a Fred Bruner autograph. He autographed um, a Frank Brunner. Why did I say Frank Fred Brunner? Yeah, I was just gonna say because I'm thinking of Fred Brenner, one of my teachers. Um, Frank Brunner autographed my comic of uh, Howard the Duck number one. Remember? Nice. Remember nice. when I went? That's right. We yes. were at the show, and I said, "Shit, there he is. Got to get one." But anyway, P.S. Art Books, the Heap Volume Two. Get on this. I'll let you in on a little secret because I have all three, uh, and I don't have any competition you can go to ebay and get these things for like aside from the first volume you're going to pay like 30 Mm -hmm. bucks for the first volume volumes two and three you can get for like 15 bucks a piece on ebay yes much better than the 50 dollar cover price that's very love it yeah that's where i got them i'm not proud i got them at a discount ain't too proud to beg y'all that's right (laughs) should we should we talk about what we gotta talk about I guess if you wanna, we'll hit a we'll hit a quick yeah. Because then we can we we can bring it back up afterwards. Okay, yeah. good. Um, last week, Dap gave us an assignment, and that I'm was blaming people and pointing fingers. Well, no, shit, you, you all right? Dap <laughs> Dap inspired us to read the. Uh, I said, "Hey, this looks cool." It and they did look cool, right? They, I'm like, I'm like, hey, they this, did. They this, did. They're, they're these four one shots, the four specials from DC, with the DC uh, heroes and uh, the Hanna Barbera characters. Um, and uh, and yeah, so I figured, hey, there's four issues. Each one has a uh, has a backup. It it. Could be fun, especially with the creative teams involved. So, mm-hmm. then what happened? Then we, we read them. them. Yeah. We, then we read them. <laughs> well, um, I guess we should have. We should have. I mean, it was a fifth week event, and I guess we should have been mindful of that. My my thing. Okay, the the four. It, it's Booster Gold and the Flintstones. Mm-hmm. It's Adam Strange and Future Quest. It's Green Lantern and Space Ghost. And Suicide Squad, Banana Splits. And that's pretty much the order in how I felt about them from um, okay to not so good. Uh, the 
Booster Gold and Flintstones special was is written by um, Mark Russell, who is the writer of the current Flintstones uh, series, which is, I believe, ending at issue 12. Right. Um, Rick Leonardi is your penciler. Scott Hanna is your anchor. Uh, Steve uh, Buscellato is your colorist. And this has a pretty funky backup story, which is probably the one, if they decide to go with this book, I can see me reading it. It's The Jetsons, written by Jimmy Palmiotta and Amanda Connor, and drawn, illustrated by Pierre Brito, who we met at New York Comic Con a couple years ago. Uh, and I believe Jason has on one of his jam pieces. West Coast Avengers, yeah. That's right. So, um, the, uh, Are you laughing? <laughs> You're funny. The, 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 the hook for the backup for the Jetsons, was pretty interesting. It's it's uh, it's definitely not. Uh, they kind of, sort of, maybe a little bit look like the characters from the cartoon, but it's uh, it's basically it's almost like it's an origin story, uh, and uh, but which is weird because the characters in the story seem to be a bit older or more mature than they are in the cartoon. But obviously, they can't be if there's a character introduced. And anyway, uh, the main story, the Flintstone story. With Booster Gold, um, it was more or less a Booster Gold story more than it was a Flintstone story. And right. if you had said to me that this is the same writer, I'd have laughed and smacked you because it didn't really – now that Jason says it's a fifth week event, it, it almost makes me wonder if like if, if some – and after reading all four issues, if maybe some of the creators, if their hearts really weren't in it. Some right. Exactly. Jokes, just it's like because because none of them. I mean, you have Booster running around saying FFS, you know. So and which I do on 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 Facebook and and Slack and and IMs to my friends all the time. Uh, so this obviously isn't designed. You said that. Oh, I, I do. Yeah, I, I write FFS all the time. Um, if if uh. None of the, none of the four, they all sort of have a slightly, uh, and, and I'm pretty sure they're all rated TS, pretty much every DC book is these days. But, um, yes, they all, um, they're not, they're not designed, they're, they're not for the, the Johnny DC, they're not, they're not for the kid crowd. Uh, just based on some of the things the characters say and the, uh, the positions they're, they're, they're put in. Um, one thing. Before you move on, the Booster Gold story? Yeah. I agree with you. I had a hard time believing that Mark Russell wrote this. Yeah. But the thing that if you are going to end your story with a joke, that joke better be damn good because it's the thing that's going to reside in the memory of the reader the longest. Because that's the last thing they encountered. Yeah. Now, Booster's on a date with this girl and and he (laughs) asks her, hey, what are you doing? And she said, suing Tinder. Yeah. That, While he's eating a big ass. Right. That just that just put me off the entire story. That ending. With 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 the animals and the, the, the primates yeah. and the fort like yeah. it just it just ruined mm-hmm. it ruined it for me. I, I didn't think the story was any great shakes to begin with, but I did think yeah. the Flintstones one was the Booster Gold Flintstones was the best of all of these. 
Hanna-Barbera things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you guys feel the same? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think... Mean, um, because yeah. It, yeah, it makes sense that Booster would go would be able to go back to the time of the Flintstones and the, yep. the, the whole alien right. a- angle. Like, it, w- it was... And the Carl Sagan thing. And Carl Sagan has been a part it's of, been right. of yeah. the Flintstones, you know, to begin with. So, the Mark Russell Flintstones. So, this one made sense. The other one seemed just convoluted to me. The, the um, aside from it feeling off and just not as sharp, as good as the main Flintstone story, um, I think the Adam Strange Future Quest had the best opportunity to be a fun story. Right. But even that, uh, just, just felt flat with, with all these characters that, um, I mean, if you're, if you're familiar with Adam Strange, you'd get, you know, why he would, you may, you may recognize some of the flashbacks and, and, and understand why he would think he, he just saw Hawkman. But, um, yeah, I think if, if I had to pick one that I thought was probably my favorite of, it's a low bar, it would be the Booster Gold Flintstones one. I think the Adam Strange had the best art with Steve Lieber. It did. Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely there. looked yeah, yeah. the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are your thoughts on uh, the Booster Gold Flintstones, Jason? Um, listen, I thought they were all pretty bogus. Um, I, I agree that that was probably the best one, but it lacked, it lacked the biting social right. commentary that the Flintstones book itself has. Right. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It just, I guess it just feels like, uh, you know, this was not peanut butter and chocolate. You know, combining to be Reese's. Right. No. This right. was, uh, you know, vanilla ice cream and pickles combining to be nasty. So, you know, honestly, the thing I liked the most of, um, of all of these was the, uh, Snagglepuss backup. You like that one the most, huh? Well, that's gonna, that's gonna be a series. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, they pretty much I, all say to be continued or continue reading yeah. in. I think Snagglepuss is, I would like the character as a kid. I could actually hear his voice reading the book. Yeah. I, I thought that was time. It was it was it was as clever that they, you know, set it up where he was having you know he was part of the hearings about the indecency, and uh, so yeah, I kind of I kind of dug that, especially if it's going to be political in its vibe and be about uh, you know this crazy world we're living in right now. That that I could be down with, but uh, yeah, but but these were you know these were a whiff. It definitely these felt like fifth week stories to me. You know, yeah. oh no me. doubt. It could have been an annual. Um, it, 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 it just—they could have been. It would have been a week done. annual, but it wouldn't have been. You know, it wouldn't have been like a fifth week filler. Uh, mm-hmm. the, um, I gotta say, I thought Ben Caldwell's art on the banana splits was really nice. But yeah, that had its moments. It wasn't. Um, the, I mean, the, the Harley really expecting right. The Harley parts great. were great. Right. Yeah. But um, if you're gonna mangle one of my most beloved Saturday morning shows. Oh, it, I it, hated it, that. Cartoon. Oh, I loved Banana Splits. Come on. Oh, I hated it. It was, it was. That's just an age thing, dude. Okay. Yeah. I love Banana Splits. This is not an improvement on the Banana Splits. This, mm-hmm. this, is, I, 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 this is an abomination. Because really. Swarty would have loved the whole CB4 vibe at the end of the uh, story, but mm-hmm. I don't know why it takes. Rick Flag so goddamn long to heal 
from a busted eye if it's six months later and he's still showing some bruising. I, there are just certain things that I thought overall it was a, um, it, yeah, it was another one that had its moments and, and I think the characters kind of, uh, it, it, it probably captured the flavor of all the characters that, well, I don't know about the Manda Splits fence, but as far as the Suicide Squad, I thought it, it made for, um, it, it put them in a situation that was, uh, that was at least somewhat entertaining, especially since I'm not up to date on the current Suicide Squad book. Um, who is? <laughs> you with mm. the whole uh, crossover, but yeah, the I read uh, that. But... Um, the Snagglepuss looked fantastic. The I, now I don't know if that means that Scooby Apocalypse is ending, or if they're getting a new artist, or if this was just Porter just doing this story, and Snagglepuss will get a different ongoing artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, Scooby Apocalypse is ending soon, okay. and, and thankfully so. I guess they're all it, like just it's uh, gone on too long. Okay. Yeah, well, Flintstones is ending at 12, so maybe, yeah, maybe they're all just, you know, maybe that, there you go, Gabriel, there's, there's your 12 issue miniseries. Uh, the, the, um, the, like Vince said, with the Libra art in the Adam Strange Future Quest, uh, which I guess also ties into that, the, the Future Quest book as far as, uh, the, the characters that were, uh, involved and, and, um, and Todd for his parents. Uh, but the, the Top Cat backup didn't really do anything for me. The deal. What the hell are you doing? I know. Hey, <laughs> hey, let, I got a story with the Top Cat and I'm going to have him talk to, to <laughs> Selena because she's Catwoman. Like, oh my God. No, no, no. That didn't work at all. But the, shocking. Uh, yeah. The, it's the I, deal. It didn't work. I, I don't know why. Actually, I might have to change my um, my ranking. I think the uh, in fourth place, especially with the rough and ready backup, is Green Lantern Space Ghost. Yeah, um, yeah. This was uh, this one is written, and it's oh, it takes two. You yeah. have two writers. You have James Dean and Christopher Sabella as your writers. Ariel Olivetti on art and colors and a larger world studios. It took a studio to letter this story. Um, and I, I guess the, it, it, it kind of, at least as far as new 52 goes, it, it, it feels kind of like how, um, and the, the way you get green lantern and space goes to meet. Okay. But, um, some of the, it, th- this was a story that just kind of reached its conclusion pretty quickly and, and, yeah. uh, with, with very little, um, it drama. Have, it or, did have Larflees though. There you go. So, so Vince is, that was, that was, oh, I, you know, I wasn't giddy. I mean, <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> Larflees was in it, maybe it's like what, three panels, not. four panels. It's, but the, you know, I'm 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 mystified by Ariel Olivetti. What's with the background? The, the guy can obviously draw. He's he's oh, hey, yeah. he's a very very um, adept illustrator, but he feels the need to buttress his work with this digital bullshit. 
that it just – like the texture – I think the Green Lantern Space Ghost issue could be a, a, a treatise on how not to use digital um, – Textures and artwork in your in your comic book work. The Chaken story is is abysmal. It, it's horrible. It's, it's so bad. There's only one good thing about this whole Shaken backup that he he wrote and draw, um, which again is basically a, a, an origin story of of Rough and Ready, and and again it's it's definitely catered more towards uh, a team or, or, or someone who thinks, you know, the jokes are funny, but it's, it's a, uh, th- there's one panel where, 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 where rough sex is doing their skit, do, doing their act and, uh, sex is talking and it's just a bunch of actresses. And, and Howard says, next time you see me at a show, get this book signed and I'll tell you the punchline. And, and I, Based on where they're going with the joke, you can kind of see where, you know, I don't think you really need Howard to break it down to you. Uh, but I thought that, you know, kind of just that amused me because we've spoken with Howard and, and it definitely that that felt like a kind of Howard thing in this in this story. But over, I mean, the rest of the story was just it's that I mean, yeah. it's summed up. It was poop. It was. And it's it's I don't know if Howard gets paid by the texture. But <laughs> this thing I got to up my creative cloud license yeah. So let me, uh, Since, let me do a book this month. You know, Letraset is hard to come by now, so uh, he must be dropping these things in digitally, and it just uh, stop. It, it, it's a cascade of fonts and textures, and it's just it's not easy on the eyes. It's really not. And and again, um, at the end of the story, stay tuned. Damn it. So that this is one that doesn't actually say to be continued in the Jetsons or those right. of Snagglepuss. This is one of those. This is just you know, yeah. We may get more backups of Rough and Ready. I guess I don't know. I I can wait. This isn't right, the. Right. Um, but you won't have to wait long because oh in, no, it's in the previews. In this previews, there are, are a total of seven. Okay. New, but the, but these are. DC and it looks like Warner Brothers too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The inside cover. These are the DC Looney Tunes. Yeah, because you get Batman, Elmer Fudd. And I've seen. And and what's funny is Aaron Lepresti was uh, on Facebook was showing you very very small panels of Martian of Marvin the Martian work and uh, and it was a, apparently at the time a top secret project, but obviously now oh. uh, it's been revealed. But. Dude, I didn't know this Batman Elmer Fudd is written by Tom King. It is? Yes. <laughs> Wait, Batman Elmer Fudd written by Tom King, art and cover by Lee Weeks. So you know it's, I mean, if there's a sure bet with the this DC characters, Warner Brothers, I guess it's the Tom King one. The Jonah, yeah. Jonah Hex Yosemite Sam is written by uh, Jimmy Palmiotti with art and cover by Mark Texera. Wow. All over it. Legion, I am so there. Legion of Superheroes, Bugs Bunny, oh, funny, yeah. written by Sam Humphreys, art by Tom Grummet and Scott Hanna. See, I mean, it's like, like I don't so know. These seem these seem to be good, right? Yeah. Lo, Lobo Roadrunner Special, written by Bill Morrison, that makes sense. art I by mean, cover and cover by Kelly Jones. Like, why yeah. not? And then you have the Marvin the. 
kind of makes sense. They do make sense. Marvin the Manhunter with um, Martian Manhunter. No, Marvin the Martian. Sorry. With with Marvin... Marsh, yeah, whatever. The Martian characters are getting together on this. Steve Orlando and Frank Barbieri. Aaron Lepresti and Jerome K. Moore uh, illustrated it. Wonder Woman Tasmanian Devil, written by Tony Bedard, art by Barry Kitson. See? And the DC Looney Tunes 100-page Super Spectacular. This looks like a bunch of reprints. Right? Mark Evanier wrote it. Joe Staten, Mike DiCarlo, and Todd Palmer. What, what page are you on? Because I can't find it. That No, it was a 2000 uh, miniseries. No, 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 no. In, in previews. 116. 116. 116. 116. 116. 116. 116. 116. 116. 116. 116. Mm-hmm. It just, I don't know, like the Marvel diversity, they they seem too manipulated, too carefully crafted. Right. It just, it didn't do anything for me. I like the Steve Root cover on the DC Looney Tunes 100 page Super Spectacular. Yeah. Man can draw Superman, right? You really can. Um, but yeah, no, the, uh, I mean, if, if you like these Hanna-Barbera characters, um, it, it's... You know, maybe you'll get something out of it. I, I don't know. I, I thought I just it was. It's not like I don't know. I, I don't. I honestly don't know what I expected when I when I saw them advertised and I saw them available and I was like, all right, let's see. But yeah. it was um, bottom line. Not we can't recommend them. No, that's about, yeah. That's the bottom that's, line, yeah, right? It's if you like the creative teams, if you like the characters that are in the stories. You may feel like giving it a shot, but it's not something. If if you are hurting to read something, I don't think I would hit any of these four. I offer so many other things. Yeah, I'd, I'd say read since past before I'd say. To... <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, since past for real. Well, because I have it, so oh. if I if, if I took one for the team for this, then you know yeah. you can since past. These are slightly better than since past. I will take your word for it. Okay. <laughs> All right, everybody. Hey, just a reminder. No. What? Wait, really? We're going out with that? No, we got. I thought you said bring it up, which meant are in your travels. Oh. No, I meant I meant well. You mean like this out of the way, love. and then right, right, right. Oh, uh, what's the love? Give me some love. What you, you got? got? No love. I got plenty of love, but actually, Jason and I could probably. Th- oh, I don't. Did, did you read no, the second I'm, issue? I'm, yeah, dog. All right, then we can we can go in. Yeah. Some, some what are we, we doing? Um, we uh, it, it was I the first issue. I don't know if I, it was part of the episode or if it was my in your travels, but the second issue was released, I believe, today. Uh, this is uh, Savage Things from Vertigo. Mm-hmm. Written. By Mr. Justin Jordan, illustrated by Abraham Mustafa, who is mm-hmm. a fantastic illustrator, uh, drew the high crimes book from, uh, Monkey Brain, uh, colored by the guy who's probably going to be on Jason's Colors of the Year again, Jordan Boyd. And, My uh, love. it is, um, I, 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 
I'm digging the the Mark Bright vibe art wise. This is Savage Things number two, a uh, story about um, two boys who grew up to be two men uh, who basically go by the names Cain and Abel, but they are um, raised uh, to um, not be soldiers, not be uh, they're 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 basically they're sociopaths they're they're killers they're not uh, they're not they have no feelings towards there's no empathy if um and 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 they're they're part of a program that was many many years in in making them molding them having them do what uh what what this organization wants them to do and it is it's I read, I, I didn't kind of know where we were going with the first issue, but after I read the second issue, I need to read the third. I, 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 I know it's just, this is a limited series, but I am all in now with the second issue. It was a great second issue. Yeah. I mean, cosine, um, shout out to Ibrahim Mustafa, uh, who crushes it on the art. Uh, it's, it's an ultra violent book. Um, and you know it's it's not unfamiliar territory on the surface, which is this idea of an off the books group of covert agents that uh, you know do bidding for the government. Frankly, one could look at it as as, as another take on you know the Jason Bourne, uh, Robert Ludlum stuff. But it's what if the government created those agents, and instead of being spies, they were homicidal maniacs. You know. And that's the cool twist. It's like they train these kids to be uh, to do the government's bidding, but the, but they're absolute sadists. I mean, complete and other other sadists. I mean, we're talking about killing babies, lighting lighting villages on fire, you know, uh, you know, spilling out people's entrails and making signs with them. It's like this is this is like uh, a government program gone wrong to the nth degree, and. Uh, it's pretty neat, and it's it's. I, I'm generally a fan of of stories involving an antagonist uh, in the lead, and that certainly certainly fits the, the the bill here with Abel. I mean, Abel is is a is nothing short of an evil person. I mean, <laughs> capable of doing the most horrifying acts and doing them quite well and quite easily. But he's been thrust in the position of being the hero, quote unquote, of this of this narrative. And uh, I think that always makes for potentially interesting storytelling. So yeah, I'm, I'm totally stoked to be up in this for, uh, and I, I give you credit for turning me onto it because it was well off my radar until you nice. until you mentioned it. I, it it's there, there are certain. Th- I mean, it's not it's not like it's extremely subtle or anything. But uh, when you read the conversations between Abel and uh, his his captor, um, and she. They're, they're, they're kind of working each other. He, he, he's in an interrogation room. He's handcuffed. Um, he's trying to get a read on her. Uh, but it's all, it's all by the book. It's all SOP. And, and, and she knows that he is so good at what he does that he obviously wanted to get caught, which means they can use that to their advantage and they can, Stop Kane because maybe he wants, and, and so you're going to end up working together, and and it's just a way 
the way the characters play off each other, interact with each other, um, and, and how everybody kind of just reads the room, reads each other, uh, reacts to what's going on. It's, uh, it, it, it yes, like Jason said, if, if, if you are a fan of the Bourne franchise, um, this is, uh, I, I think you would really feel at home reading this. Uh, definitely check it out. It, it doesn't, um, I mean, Jordan's written a lot of things. Uh, there's, there's, um, he, he wrote some of the Green Lantern stories a few years back. Uh, Luther Strode, um, there, there's been a few, they're not, um, and I'm drawing a blank right now, but, but Kyle Strong does the art, not, not spread. What is the, um, the, the, the image book? It's like the John Carpenter's The Thing meets, but you know what I'm talking about. It is spread. It is spread? Okay, thank you. Yeah. Um, but so, but this doesn't really feel like any of his, uh, sci-fi crazy, um, fantastical out This kind of feels, I mean, it, it reads a lot more grounded, a lot more real world and, and which makes it a little bit scarier for me in that regard. Uh, but definitely, um, check it out if you haven't. Oh, show. Nice. Loves it. Art is so good. It is. All right, everybody. He is bringing it. Thank you very much. Uh, As usual, or as of last episode, this episode (laughs) has been sponsored by The Valiant and their all-new Exo Man of War number one on sale now in comic shops everywhere. Get in on this if you are a Valiant neophyte. This is the uh, one place you need to go to get yourself up to snuff. Exo Manowar, Matt Kent, Thomas Giarello. It's amazing. Go get it. Uh, and DCBService.com. The list of specials are up from Dark Horse. Matt Wagner, Grendel Tales Omnibus Volume 1 for $12.49 for over 400 pages. Uh, Boom has the Planet of the Apes Archive Hardcover Volume 1 for $24.99. My goodness, that's 50% off cover price. And from Valiant, Secret Weapons Number 1. Eric Heiserer, uh, Raul Allen, $1.99. In your travels, Mr. Scholey has one final bow for mm-hmm. the, uh, the G.I. Joe Transformers, and it is called Transformers vs. G.I. Joe The Movie. It's a Tom Scholey production published by IDW. It's a one shot. Uh, I, I loved everything about this thing. Um, it is basically an encapsulation of everything that Tom did in his, uh, Transformers versus G.I. Joe. Mm-hmm. But it, since this is the movie, things are slightly different. Uh, you still have Aberneth and that, that mystical weapon that, uh, combated the, uh, Decepticons. Scarlet takes a center stage in the movie, rightly so. Come on, it's Scarlet. Um, but certain things are tweaked a little bit. Certain things are changed. Uh, instead of calling this Transformers the movie, I would call this Transformers the movie the trailer <laughs> because there are there are gaps in the action. Like there are things um, 
in which Mr. Shirley allows you to fill in the blanks. So um, there's Jason. You'll love this scene. Cobra Commander is piloting Starscream, and Snake Eyes jumps on the back of the plane, and he mm-hmm. he raises his katana, and Starscream transforms just a little bit. He lets his arms loose, and he catches Starscream's blade with the two double, oh, nice. double palm things, while Megatron and Optimus Prime fight in the background with Hawk blowing away at one of uh, Soundwave's cassettes. Like, mm, like it, it. it's crazy. Um, it's done in the the style of you know Transformers versus GI Joe, where Shirley did the crayon layer, and it, it has a very very unique look to it. Uh, it's not inked. It's it's beautiful pencils by Shirley, colored by Shirley. It it's just an amazing thing. This was um, four ninety nine for a one shot. It's an extra size issue. You get voluminous background information. Like he plays it as if this were really a movie. So Scarlet is played by Shauna O'Hara, and he interviews her in the back. Then nice. you, you get um, the special effects of Transformers versus G.I. Joe where he does a faux green screen. He shows an actor uh, in the in the role of Optimus Prime studying his lines mm-hmm. under an umbrella. Then you get uh, roughs, uh, panel layouts, and the uh, the customary commentary by Mr. Sholey that they've done that they did in the uh, the director's commentary by Sholey that they did in the the he and Barber did in the Transformers vs. GI Joe comic. It's it's great stuff. It's it's the end cap to the series, and you need to read it. So check it out: Transformers vs. GI Joe the movie. A Tom Shirley production. It's all gold. Nice. Yeah, it's gold. Uh, in your travels, um, this uh, this series just pretty much wrapped up um, because the creative team are they're going to move on to other things. Uh, but um, Black Widow. By Wade and Somni yes. and uh, Wilson. Um, 12, 12th issue came out uh, a couple weeks ago, and it uh, when when uh, Jason catches up on, on Marvel Unlimited, we'll, we'll go into it further. I, I read the first eight nine issues, uh, catching up on the last couple and um it is it, it's it's a gorgeous looking book it's been a um it's it, it's very much like tom king's vision uh which good solid 12 issues telling the story of, of a character that uh, we pretty much all know um but just now have a different take on uh this is a really really good Black Widow story, giving you some uh, insight on her life, uh, the people she knows, uh, and people who made her who she is. Um, and Wade can tell a really good story, and, and he can usually tell a story with any artist. Uh, but I don't know if it's just, if it's Black Widow, if it's the whole kind of, uh, Russian spy 
motif if if it's just uh if it's just Chris's way with the pen and paper it it's a uh it, these two just make really beautiful music together it it's a uh it's a solid 12 issues and and really everything you need is, is right in there it's 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 a real good story uh real good character building and uh i, I think um if if you're a fan of of solid characters and really well told and beautiful stories, then uh, then I think you should really be checking this one out. Cosign, nice. Uh, in your travels, I caught up with last year's Eisner winner for best comic series. You guys remember what that was? No. <laughs> Vince? Yeah, pause. You want me bro? Peace, Vince. No, I'm mute. I was typing. Um, was it Saga? It was not Saga. Hmm. Way to go, Vince. I'm sorry. You're the right writer, though. Oh, Brian K. Vaughn. Um, Paper Girls. Paper Girls. Uh, oh, yeah, I'm so behind and on Cliff- that. Cliff Chang won the Eisner for that is right. Best Artist. Uh, so the book is Paper Girls, uh, written by Brian K. Vaughn, uh, artist Cliff Chang, colors Matt Wilson, and letters by Jared K. Fletcher. Uh, 13 issues so far. The third arc, the 13th, just hit this week, I believe, I believe today. Um, yeah, I was way behind on it, too. Uh, and, and no, for no reason other than I just have a ridiculous Regine pile and things happen to fall into little little pockets of uh, little mini black holes in my house and I forget that they're there. Um, but it's been on my to-read list to get caught up, and I'm glad I did. Uh, this book is hyper-nostalgic for people our age. It is all about the 80s, uh, much in the same way that Stranger Things, which frankly... I probably get hate mail for this. I don't think Stranger Things is a great television show. I think it's a fun, good show that is uh, amped up by the nostalgia uh, and the the pure unabashed um, homage to the eighties. Uh, I think Paper Girls is similar in the sense that it is deeply an homage to the eighties, um, with meticulous detail from the clothes to the slang to the in jokes to the uh, stuff on the shelves to the kinds of art and furniture in the people's houses. It's, it's just wonderfully accurate in that regard. Um, and I have no idea if that appeals to people that don't have an affinity for the eighties or didn't grow up in that era, but it must because the book seems to be doing well critically. Um, but at its heart, it is a story of four young girls who all happen to be paper girls at a time when that's a relatively new phenomenon because it was generally a, a job for boys. Uh, and they are immediately thrust into a crazy Spielberg-esque adventure w- involving um, displaced people from both the past and the future. Uh, and a grand conspiracy that somehow involves time travel and uh, the dangers of of, of of time travel and what that means in terms of affecting reality and the future and the like. And uh, uh, it's just a crazy nonstop cosmic adventure um, where these girls are thrust into situations where they meet their future selves, 
where they learn about their futures, uh, where they uh, are confronted with um, uh, questions about who they can trust and who they can't trust, inclusive of themselves and, and different versions of themselves. Uh, it's been a crazy ride. I have to say, this is definitely a book that uh, I would highly recommend you read in ARCs. Um, I think as a standalone monthly issue, it can be hard at first to really get uh, tethered to the story because it's so wacky and so much is going on. But reading the whole thing in a sitting or two um, made it far more cohesive, akin to if we were sitting down and watching a Netflix series or a movie. So I definitely say that's the way to go, is do it in arcs. Um, but man, oh man, uh, visually Cliff is just off the charts here, not only for the accuracy of his of his portrayal, but you know he's he's a wonderful cartoonist. He's he, he does, he's amazing. His facial expressions are amazing, and I think he's 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 also um, uh, great at evoking fear and emotion, and uh, and he hits just the right beats. There's there's moments that are you know leave you gasping. Um, I just it's wonderful. It's really it's a it's a perfectly well constructed and uh, you know masterful you know collaboration between these four four creators and uh, I, I I think it's uh, it's worthy of the praise it's received from uh, venues outside of our uh, ourselves who are you know way we you know we're way behind for whatever reason so get caught up Coolio nice co-signed all right everybody feeling good um, thank you for being <laughs> yeah Thank you for being here with us yet again. If you enjoyed any of this whole shebang, please do us a solid and leave us an iTunes review or a review at a similar uh, podcast um, aggregator. And uh, in the meantime... In between time. In between time, say goodnight. David. Ooh, it's short tonight. Yeah. Goodnight. I can do the whole skinny do David. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, come to our website, 11oClockComics.com. Come to yeah, our. This might post something. Come to. Oh, you got to shit in my Cheerios, don't you? All the time. <laughs> uh, I, I, better I, than the Honey Nut. I did this what? week. I love Honey Nut you Cheerios. Did. You did. You yeah. did. Yeah. Su- such, such as it was. Um, hey, come to our Facebook page. We're there too. And uh, we do all this because we love you and we want you back here next week because if you aren't, David gets all jittery and, and stuff. And it's, it's true. It's not. That's why I drink. I'm it's, afraid somebody's not going to be there. Right. It's not pleasant. So dismiss uh, with the unpleasantries and come back and make David happy, make us happy, make you happy. Help us help you. There so we that's go. what I'm trying to say. Sure. Because <laughs> we love you. <sighs> It sounds like he did say it, though. I mean, I don't know what trying shit. Right. Right. Say goodnight. I already did. Not Jason didn't say anything. Goodnight. There you go. Uh, peace, people. <laughs> <laughs>